and welcome aboard the Battleship Retention. I am not Tyler Smith. I am David Bax. Tyler Smith is on assignment. And thank you for listening. David. Yes. Who am I? Uh, you are Battleship Retention Editor-at-Large Scott Nye. Thank God. I was worried for a second <laughs> that I'd become somebody else. Uh, and yeah, uh, Tyler is not here. He's, uh, I think, working. I can't quite remember uh, what Who he's doing. Who knows what he does when he's not sitting here in front of you? <laughs> Couldn't be anywhere. He says he works, but well, he, does he uh, have a job? He'll never listen to this, so I can say this. Um, I once realized, and he he got mad at me because I, I once realized subconsciously whenever he was like late for something I couldn't do for do like make something. Yeah. I would always be, I would always subconsciously be like, Oh, he must have a church thing because he's a movie guy right. and he goes to church. That's like, well, I now, think I've, I've learned more now, yeah. but there was a time that he, uh, that, uh, how he long got ago little, was this? This was back when, because uh, it came up on the Paul Goble show. Okay. He was late for a recording of the Paul Goble show. Right. So we started without him. Yeah. And Paul asked me where Tyler was, and I said, I think some church thing. It turned out it wasn't at all. Okay. Uh, and uh, Tyler got a little miffed with me. <laughs> Back then, it was probably a more accurate response. I think now, you know, he's teaching the young yeah. kids. Yeah. Yeah, he's out there. Driving to the ends mines. of the earth. Uh, yeah, reading to children. Uh, <laughs> Is that what teachers do now? <laughs> Probably. Okay. Uh, so, how are you, Scott? Uh, good. I'm finally caught up on sleep from the event that we will soon be talking about. Oh. Uh, I was very sleep deprived most of the weekend, and even getting nine hours of sleep on Sunday to Monday did not uh, do anything to catch me up. But really, now I'm feeling good. I think I slept about the normal amount. Well, you didn't I, do any midnight movies. I didn't do any midnight movies. Yeah, that's right. But I also normally only sleep about like five and a half hours a night anyway. Well, look at you, that's, Batman. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I was about on track. Okay, fair um, enough. Yeah, but that's not healthy. I no. will I will die younger than you will, probably. Uh, <laughs> You're also a little older than I, so at and, any rate, I do look forward. And I smoke forward, cigarettes. Yeah, I, I still look forward to uh, crashing your funeral in some capacity. <laughs> You're going to have to crash? You don't think you're going to be invited? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I think just by this declaration, I've made that clear. Um, all right, so uh, we have ads. We have other stuff. Uh, I don't. We have a guest as well. Yeah, I know. It's, I mean, you're a guest, but also we have a guest. Uh, so I don't. We don't normally do top of the show stuff, but timely. You know, when we have guests, uh, timeliness sort of prevails here. And I want to mention there's been a lot on the on the on on film Twitter. Uh, or just Twitter in general, but specifically like nerd film Twitter, the uh, don't spoil the end game hashtag has been very big. So I today. hear. And um, I just want to point out that a yes, by the time when you're hearing this, I guess I won't, I know I won't have seen end game, but I'll be seeing it a couple days before sure. two or three days before it comes out. Um, so a lot of people, and even then once it comes out, you give people time to see it. A big movie like that, Yes, don't be a dick. Don't spoil things. Right. But also, I want to point out that um, it's also kind of on the onus is on the people who don't want to be spoiled a little bit too. Yeah. To avoid it, because I saw one critic, a critic that I'm actually friends with um, and and like a lot, so I'm not going to name the person. But they said uh, they, they told a story about like uh, a friend of theirs or something was um, very upset because. Uh, a movie review of The Last Jedi mentioned that Yoda was in the movie. Oh, yeah. And to me, if you are of the opinion 
that Yoda appearing in a Star Wars movie right. is a spoiler. Probably shouldn't be reading. Just don't read the reviews. Yeah. If that's if your de- definition of a spoiler is that tight, right. just avoid the reviews. Don't expect everyone else to have the same definition of what is and isn't a spoiler. You yeah. know, like to me, there are already people saying like, don't. I've seen people like saying like, don't even look at the YouTube for the Avengers Endgame trailer because the screen grabs for the YouTubes sure. have spoilers in them. But I'm just like, if that's your thing, yes, you're doing it right. But I don't know if that's considered. I don't know if I even consider that a spoiler. If you do, the onus is on you. I mean, it's easy for me. I'm just not paying attention, so I yeah, missed it entirely. <laughs> and I'm uh, looking forward to the movie too. Yeah, but I like. I mean, I don't go out of my way to watch any trailers. I don't read any articles. So I like accidentally become very spoiler insulated and like things people know about, know about months in advance that were in the trailers or whatever. I'm like, that was pretty cool, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, it was in the trailer guy. Yeah. There are a number of times that I have written a movie review and called that a specific line in the movie that I liked sure. only to later either realize or be told that, right. that it was in the trailer and yeah. everyone's heard it 50 times. Well, I understand that a lot of uh, Marvel fans are quitting social media because of these spoilers that are like lurking about, which Glenn Kenny rightly remarked, well, something's good come of all this. <laughs> <laughs> Anything that get people to, that can get people to quit social, <laughs> social media, to be honest, uh, I've been trying to do less of it. I go on like diets. I, I compare it to a diet because it's the same thing. I'll do the same thing. I'll, I'll be good for a little while right. restricting social media just like when i'm trying to eat healthy i'll do well for a little bit but then after a few weeks of eating healthy i'll be like i can afford a breakfast right. burrito i've been doing okay yeah and then like cut to a week later i've had a breakfast burrito a day and i'm like where did i go wrong that's what happens with social media is i'll have a little diet where i'm like i feel you know great hashtag self-care <laughs> like <laughs> really taking care of myself, not getting, uh, uh, embroiled in, in, in social media. And then I'll have like some time to kill be waiting for a movie to start or right. something. And I'd be like, I can look at Twitter now. And then yeah, a, a month later I'm like furious at everything my, all the time. Uh, my use is directly proportioned to how bored I am. So if I have time, I look at it. If I don't, I don't, I don't miss it. And see, I've started reading other things when I'm, when I'm when I'm bored now I have other things I read I mean that's this makes me less angry but I read Politico when I'm bored instead <laughs> sure. of reading Twitter because at least that is like a drier delivery of the news I suppose so um, I also read Eater now okay. which is not yeah. helping my uh, attempts to eat healthier sure sure because <laughs> I'm like I gotta have all these ramen bowls this weekend yeah um, I guess if I have enough time to actually sit down and read something sure but usually I have like a couple minutes to kill and it's right. like I don't want to find some damn article yeah yeah. Now I use Twitter mostly for following hockey games like right. the one that is currently being played in St. Louis in which it is uh last I checked it was tied at nil. Yeah. No uh, no score after one period. All so right. I'll try and remember to I'm sure they'll catch up people. <laughs> uh so uh let's uh, I'm just going to read the ads, okay? All right. So, this episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Every day, Mubi's curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Currently, uh, I'm going to throw to you, Scott, because you have it up. What's on Mubi that's of note? They uh, have a Straub Houlet retrospective, uh, whose work I'm somewhat familiar with and is very engaging there's some claire denis material some white material in fact uh along with bastards which is a huge bummer to watch but quite a good movie 
Uh, let's see. They got some Arabian Nights. They got some Agnes Varda. They got some good stuff, David. Yes, they are doing. They have three. I think three Agnes Varda films. I count or, four. Oh, do you? Okay, maybe I'm. Maybe uh, I'm counting. That's the thing about movie is that they're always yeah. adding new stuff. So maybe last Can't time tell. I checked, it was three. So yeah, uh, definitely Agnes Varda in the news um, for unfortunate reasons. Claire Denis in the news for very positive reasons because High Life is great. Um, and uh, those are all available. Those and, and, and about 24 other films are available uh, at movie right now. They're always great films. And uh, there's a special offer for listeners about Battleship Pretension. You can try movie free for a month. Just go to movie.com. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Battleship to redeem now. And uh, Scott and guest, I also want to tell you about tweakedaudio.com. You Please do. Tweakedaudio.com is where you go for uh, um, professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. Uh, they look great. They sound great. I use them each and every day. Um, uh, I guess I could go into I, I, I feel like I'm always pointing out, like, here's who died in music this week. And um, it seems to guide a lot of your choices. You got profile episodes and what you listen to. Life yeah. of Life is guided by death. Yeah, it is. Think about that? I, well, I think about death a lot. Okay. So it kind of makes sense. So, yeah, um, but uh, I don't want to, I mean, I, I don't want to focus on, on that. Um, I do want to, what I want to say is uh, I've very accidentally gotten really into Thin Lizzy. Really into Thin Lizzy right now. Accidentally is the only way that can happen. <laughs> Have you really listened to no. them? They're great. It, the accident hasn't happened for me yet. And because I've, I've also realized, basically, I I read about there's like a Thin Lizzy tribute album coming out that has a lot of like metal acts that I because Thin Lizzy sure. is often thought of as like a metal right. like precursor or whatever. Um, and I was like, well, tribute albums are usually terrible. I'm not going to listen to that, but. Hey, all these people like Thin Lizzy. Maybe I should. So I spent the day like listening to a lot of Thin Lizzy and a realizing that I knew more Thin Lizzy songs than I thought I did. Okay. Uh, and B realizing Thin Lizzy rocks and it all sounded great on my tweakedaudio.com earbuds. They're available at a low, low price at tweakedaudio.com. But if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Scott? Yeah. Let's get into it, shall we? Okay. But first, I'm going to introduce our guest. That's how we get into it. She, <laughs> she's a longtime friend of the show. That is uh, the extent of her relation to the people <laughs> at this table, I was told. Uh, there's no other information to impart. Right. Uh, um, uh, and she's been a participant in our fall movie previews and this episode in the past, right? You were here last year, right? Yeah. Yes. I forgot about that as we were discussing planning this episode. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So please welcome back to the show, Julie Sesnovich. Hello. Uh, I feel like you're really like building my legend by like alluding to me for so long without saying my name. I really feel like it builds up the mystique. Yeah. Well, I've, uh, I've been podcasting for over 12 years. I know how to do this. <laughs> yeah. I know how to no, I like it. build up some mystique. Plus yeah. everyone it's in the episode description. Everyone already knows you're here. <laughs> well, fair enough. <laughs> um, so 
Scott, what are we talking about today? We're talking about the Turner Classic Movies Classic Film Festival. Do you know how many other these there have been? Uh, yeah, if only there were some sort of... If they had gone to any length to right. let you know yeah. to put it in the, the graphics <laughs> yeah. yeah no this is the 10th annual yeah. or yeah the 10th annual yeah. uh turner classic movies classic film festival which is what it's called right the tcm <laughs> sounds good the word classic is in, it's it in twice. there twice yeah 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 um uh this is only my fourth it's your ninth yeah julie Ninth, yeah. Ninth as well. Uh, okay, so you guys and that's are only the, because we moved here the year after they started. Yeah. We would have been there for the first. Yeah, we've been we going. Just didn't as have long enough as money at the here, time. So yeah. Um, well, let's talk about general thoughts uh, 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 first, since you guys have been there almost since the beginning. Um, how have you seen it change over the nearly decade? It's definitely gotten busier. Yeah, I think it's a victim of its own success in a way, because like one of the guys introducing a movie the other day was saying, like, when we first started this, we didn't know if anyone would show up. We didn't know what would happen. And it's become almost like Disneyland, like they sell out the passes and they need to get bigger and bigger venues and they're turning more and more people away. And I've been going standby this whole time. So I've never bought a pass. I'm always just living in the standby line. And at the beginning, that was really easy. I got into everything. No problem. But now there are certain movies I don't even try for. I'm like, well, that's just not happening. And there are other ones that I'm like, this is kind of on the edge. And then mm-hmm. there are ones that I'm like, this should be easy. And I get turned away. So to continue the Disneyland analogy, I think what's going to have to happen is they're just going to have to keep jacking up the price of the pass. Like that'll be kind oh. of the only way to control it. I don't know. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's tough just to find big enough venues. They're kind of stuck with the multiplex and the Egyptian. Yeah. And they introduced a new venue this year, which I hope they keep using, but it's a good hoof. Uh, yeah. And for that reason, yeah. was uh, sparsely attended, which was very nice. Oh, really? But it's very easy to get into. It seats a good amount, yeah, right? Yeah, it's like, like four hundred fifty. Yeah, something like that. So does that make it the third largest? Uh, yeah, yeah. Because the, is the Egyptian the first, or is the Chinese TCL? The first? TCL's TCL's much bigger. The first, yeah. yeah. Uh, then the Egyptian, and now this new place post forty three. Yeah, I think their capacity is actually pretty on par with the Chinese one. Oh, I thought I thought that was four hundred yeah. even, but oh, okay. maybe, maybe it's, it's a little more. It's yeah, it's oh, it is more. Okay, uh, that's that's a little bit too inside baseball, probably yeah, for the listener. Yeah. Um, but but uh, you know, I thought it was a very good year overall. Um, yeah, I mean, having the new venues definitely helped, and I didn't have a bad movie. I had never had that experience of sitting in a movie wishing I was somewhere else, which seems to inevitably happen every year. Yeah, the, I, I yeah I had the same experience. This was the first year of my only four years where I really didn't have a single dud. Yeah, uh, in in the lineup, I, d- I did feel that what Julie was talking about about it being more crowded. I felt like I was uh, there were more times when I was unsure yeah. that I was going to yeah. make it. Um, I also think I don't, you know, I love TCM, but a little bit of criticism because I've praised TCM in the, in the past for doing what other festivals don't do, which is incorporating the time of the like introduction to the movie into Mm -hmm. the like scheduled runtime. Yeah. Except this year, I I feel like more than the past three years this year, the introductions went long more often. Like I've, you know, I was, uh, I saw I saw one movie. I'm not going to say the movies, but I saw one movie because we're going to delete it later. And I was like, okay, if this goes according to plan, and not a and the robe doesn't completely fill up, I might be able to make it to the robe. But the intro to the movie went so long that by the time I got out of it, the robe had already started. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I yeah I didn't. So I did miss that one uh, that movie because of that. And I and and I felt like there were other movies where the intro. 
uh, went long and, and yeah, there's a movie coming up that we'll talk about that. I'm pretty sure I was the last person right. to get in and that wouldn't have even happened if I hadn't just like been thrown civility to the wind and sort of like <laughs> ducked and we right. weed my way through. We all the, come to that point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, uh, so I, I think if, if they're gonna, uh, do that, which they should. I, I, you know, the introductions are a big draw to a lot of people. They're not my favorite part, right. usually. Yeah. Um, occasionally, someone you know, like Angie Dickinson, which we'll talk about later, will, will end up being a lot of fun. But um, uh, if they're going to do that, and that's, again, that's fine. A lot of people love them. I think they need to stick to the timetable. They need to say, you have this long, and then yeah. you have... Or just block out more time, which I, yeah. I think they used time. to block out more time, yeah. especially for the Q&As with yeah. big stars or something. Um, but have a volunteer whose job it is, like, you know, um, to compare it to a, a, an event that is in some ways very different, but in some ways very much alike, San Diego Comic-Con. Right. Uh, you know, they have volunteers whose job is to like sit or stay near the front row and they have like a 15 minutes left sign a 10 minutes left sign a five minutes left sign so the people who are up there always know how you know how close they are to they actually were doing that at tcm i saw that happening and i saw the hosts ignoring it oh okay yeah i definitely there were different like somebody held up a finger and someone else like flicked a little light so they were trying yeah but. you're right <laughs> I, I, now I that you mentioned ha- it at night world they did someone did flash and i think she said we have time for one more so yeah I yeah i think they usually give them like the one more question sign but that comes too late it's like yeah. you need that you need the constant updates yeah so uh that's a, a minor complaint it was definitely after our larger complaints uh last fall about afi fest uh well, yeah AFI not, the, not the content of afi fest, right, but, but the, the experience yeah um i brought had, the fresh air that was yeah that was still very much top of mind for me and it's the same location for those who don't know the same general right. venues uh i definitely uh, this felt more fun it felt like a festival yeah, yeah. For sure. which is what it's supposed to uh supposed to be friend of the show um uh, Matt Patterson and I were talking and he, and I, and I mentioned like this, Oh, this is different than NFI fest. And he was like, Oh, I've never been. What's that like? And he like, couldn't wrap his head around <laughs> <laughs> the things that I was telling yeah. him about how dead and like unfun the atmosphere around AFI Fest can often be, unfortunately. More yeah. so this past year, which hopefully will change. You never yeah. know. Yeah, well, uh, hopefully they listen to Battleship Pretension. Yeah. I also have, I have a brief PSA about certain attendees of the festival. <laughs> this is a more general note, perhaps, but this is the one soapbox I get. I'll be brief. So basically, so even when I'm going to movies with people, I'm the only one in the standby line. I don't know who else is living this life so i'm a young woman i am in these lines and a lot of random men start talking to me or when i'm seated at a movie i'm seeing alone and i don't think they're necessarily hitting on me they're probably not they're probably just looking for someone to talk to but the problem is is that they're just deciding that this is how i am going to spend my time is talking to them it happens a lot. In fact, the same guy talked to me at two different movies and like kind of cornered me in conversation. And like I'm in a line or I'm in my seat. I can't go anywhere. So, you know, you're within your rights to start talking to somebody, but you have to gauge their reaction <laughs> to see if you should continue. If they are not making eye contact, turning their body away, maybe giving one word answers, all of which are things I do. Uh-huh you can back down and you should back down. <laughs> yeah. I, I, uh, I, I'm sure that the, um, that experience is worse for a woman because there's the added, like sort of prob- 
possibly like mansplaining or condescension. Yeah. But I've seen it like, happen to men too. Like people uh, get cornered. Yeah, no, I, it's happened to me too. It happened before the second night there was a guy sitting next to me who, I guess he was an older man, so I understand he refused to actually sit down until the lights went down. Okay. So I'm sitting down, and he's insisting on having a conversation, standing with his, like, crotch in my face <laughs> the entire time, uh, and just, like, stretching or whatever, like, getting ready to sit. Again, he's going to sit for two hours. It's okay. Yeah. But, like, you don't have to carry on a conversation right. when I'm, I'm, I'm sitting. And also, uh, I'm mad at this guy because he was, like, oh, the programming seems to get worse every year he'd been coming out oh, 10 yeah. years and uh that's not true no, uh, that's but evidence the evidence we, we, we all had a great year at tcm yeah. fest right it's uh, just like rose-colored glasses like and i think especially like when you if you've been going the whole time you do have more positive associations with the early years okay because it felt more new and exciting and fresh Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. And maybe so. he was picking the wrong ones recently. You yeah. know, like I've had years like that too. Your festival experience is to a certain extent on you yeah. of what yeah. you choose. So. All right. Uh, oh yeah. Well, you know what? Speaking of attendees, <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to, my complaint that I do every year, which I know is just me, but I will never not oh, yeah. roll my eyes <laughs> at people clapping for people who are a, not in the building and B <laughs> not anywhere. Dead, dead. <laughs> Why? Who are you trying to prove? Like we all know that, you know, who yeah. Lee, Leo McCary is. Yeah. We're all here together. <laughs> all the people who know who he is are here. You're not, you're not impressing anybody. <laughs> and, and then there's, so they do it when the names show up, then when the person shows up and then there's also, I feel like kind of like the, the pissing contest of like, who's the most obscure character. Oh yeah. And totally. And so I, do, I, I, one of these times at TCM fest, I'm just going to start clapping when some <laughs> random bit player shows up and see if I can trick anyone to joining in. But what if you're foolishly clapping for somebody who everybody else knows yeah. and they join you? Oh, that could uh, be possible. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but then weirdly, um, I guess maybe because it had been talked about in the intro, when Seymour Cassell shows up in the killers, nobody clapped. Oh, it was yeah. weird. I like, expected them to. <laughs> right. That's, like, that's, one, just that's one I would have been okay right. with. Is he almost. recognizable? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And they, but I guess because they had talked like Angie Dickinson and mentioned Seymour Cassell and everyone had clapped then, like maybe you're all, we're all. Maybe. I feel like usually pretty, that invites more clapping during the movie, yeah, in my it experience. Was, it was super weird. Um, I, I really was braced for it and then it didn't happen. Uh, so that's my. Uh, my little complaint that I do every year, I understand that it's just me, but I will just never understand. <laughs> it's the same what, people who like sing extra loud at church, <laughs> just trying to like stake their territory. I yeah. think. Oh, I had a, speaking of singing, um, I had a woman, I should, I should maybe just say this when we get to the movie, but I did have a woman behind me who was, I like enthusiasm. And so most of the time during hello, Dolly, her enthusiasm, like when, whenever a new, you know, like a new song would start, yeah. or like a new character, Tommy tune would show up. She'd be like, she would say, she would literally say, yay, the word. Yay. <laughs> say, yay. Uh, and I like, I look, I don't want to talk shit about this woman. It was fine. Um, I'm, I'm all for enthusiasm in, in situations like this, but, uh, she did start singing along to one song and that was a little bit too, yeah, yeah. That's far, too far for me. Yeah. Uh, but let's, uh, uh, Scott, you sent a master list very helpfully. Yeah. Uh, which I should, probably should have pulled up by now if I were better at hosting a podcast, but, um, let's get started talking about the movies we saw at this year's <laughs> how long can i stretch this out well a good thing the full turner festival name is classic the 10th annual, <laughs> 10th annual turner classic uh, movies 
We're going in second. chronological order, yes. Yeah. Um, well, as long yes. as we're going in chronological order, how about that Ted Turner bumper at the very beginning? How weird was that? <laughs> For one, forgot Ted Turner was still alive. They had a um, contemporary interview with Ted Turner. Yeah. A very terse Ted Turner. Well, is he terse? I mean, he's terse because he's old. Right, right? that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, yeah, I had the same reaction that, I mean, you and I haven't talked about this, but right. I follow you on Twitter, so I know I had the same reaction, which is like, I came of age as a cinephile at a time that Ted Turner was like a villain. Yeah, totally. Because of the colorization right. thing, mostly. But, I mean, it is the Turner Classic Movies Film Festival. No, I know. He's redeemed himself. Yeah, yeah. But it is just funny that there was like no mention of that period at all. And it made it seem like he was like rescuing the movies from a bad period in the 80s that he helped right. spur on. Right. Um, um yeah, but I, I did very much this. enjoy when just out of nowhere he's like, yes, like Looney Tunes. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> <laughs> in the interview. Uh, all right. So we're going to get started. Um, and it looks like, OK, Thursday night, uh, Julie didn't see anything. Nope. No. But you and I both started with Night World. Night World, which was um, uh, weirdly uh, uh, hot ticket or it seemed oh, like it. David, see, this is you're a young TCM Fest attendee. Pre-code always sells. But on a Thursday night at it 645. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Pre-code everybody is who, the hottest ticket. Everybody who's not going to the opening night thing is going to look around. What else on the schedule? Pre-code, guarantee. Okay. Because um, I I was surprised that I was in the overflow line. I yeah. was even ahead of you. Yeah, a little bit. Um, so I ended up with a better seat. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, yeah, that's a weird. Yes. Okay. Uh, I don't want to do all complaints because I did the whole complaint about the TCL seating thing at AFI, which is asinine. Right. But here, yeah, there's a, for theater six, uh, theater six, there's a balcony and they don't fill up the balcony until all the rest are filled. Right. So me, including being, the very front row. Yeah. So I, <laughs> only a half dozen people or so in line in front of, in front of yeah. you. And I end up in the front row. Uh, and then you end up in the balcony <laughs> in the much better seat. Although I will say, because I was there by myself, uh, you know, if you're looking for two seats together, it gets harder. Yeah. Uh, I was able to get literally front row center that which helps. in that in, in, in Chinese six. And especially with a movie that's one, three, seven, you yeah. have to look too far left a, and right, in which there's it, not a lot of cutting. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah it, I honestly don't. Yeah. It's not that bad. It's not like, yeah. When I to go back to AFI fest, when I saw bird box where I, my entire memory, like my memory of bird box is everyone's face being all weirdly right. shaped <laughs> because I was uh, where I was sitting. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't that bad, but yeah, we, so we saw, we've teased it enough. Uh, we saw night world, um, which, man, I really did not prepare as much as... Uh, what year is Night World? 32? 32. Uh, I didn't know who directed it. Directed yeah, by some asshole. What I meant to have called uh, Starring May Clark, Lou Ayers, and Boris uh, Karloff. Yes, and Karloff. Hedda Hopper. And Hedda Hopper, yeah. I, most surprisingly, on the cast list, as those, they do the like the intro card, and I was like, Hedda Hopper? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the yeah. Hell? I mean, it's a one-scene cameo. Yeah, she's but, a, but she's a solid scene. as an actor, I think. No, I know, but I always forget that. Yeah. And then, like, I don't think I've ever seen her in a movie. Right. And so I was just like, well, all right. Oh, how could you forget the director's name? It's Hobart Henley. Of course. <laughs> Um, Hobart Henley directed Night World. It's uh, a movie that takes place uh, all in one night. Yeah. At a nightclub. A nightclub. So dur- during Prohibition, I feel like the movie was unclear as to whether or not it was a speakeasy or because Luer's character was like bringing in his own. Right. But it felt like in the opening montage, which is one of my favorite parts of the movie, you see like champagne popping. But I don't know if that's just be supposed to be setting the scene for the 
the era. Yeah, I don't know. I couldn't tell if they were actually serving. It looked at- like a proper club. It didn't look like they're in danger of being raided okay. anytime soon. Uh, all right, because the cop talks to. Uh, oh yeah. The, oh yeah. Clarence Muse is another actor uh, who plays the doorman. Yeah. Uh, not um, very well treated by the movie. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's weird. To, yeah, he's uh, the only black actor, and he's playing a doorman, which is the kind of role that black actors often played at this at this time. Sure. And I feel like by the standards of the time, it's a it's a good character, but it I is think not. You're right, not treated well by the movie. Uh, yeah, by the end, especially. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's supposed to be sad. I think. Yeah, but it's also like that didn't need to happen <laughs> like, <laughs> by any stretch. Right, because he'd been like punished the entire movie yeah. and then just uh, insult to injury at the end. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it takes place over the course of the entire night. Uh, Boris Karloff plays the club owner who's kind of a not a mob guy, but kind of a connected guy, right. I think. Um, and then Lou Ayers plays a drunk who's hanging out at the... A rich the, drunk. A rich drunk. May Clark is uh, a show, showgirl. showgirl. They sing a song called Who's Your Little Who's It, uh, which Co- is great. Choreographed by Buzz Berkeley, which yes. is awesome. Which uh, which also you would have been able to tell even if sure. had, if uh, the introduction had not included yeah. that information. Uh, it was it was very much uh, of that of that ilk. Um, and uh, I'll mention this first. Uh Almost literally almost every film that I saw at TCM Fest featured a sort of nightclub type scene scene with a musical number, either by a group or a single person. All right. almost I, I had a, a lot woman. of those. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like I, I loved it. I mean, like I, I loved it every time. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> yeah. complaining at all, but it was weird to reflect on how that was such a trope in the thirties and forties. Yes. Yeah, big time. Um, and I wish it were more of one now. Do you think I know Steve like... McQueen tried to bring it back with shame, but that movie was terrible. And that <laughs> scene in particular is terrible, but uh, I liked the effort. At sure. least. Do you think there's like a modern day equivalent though? Oh, I wonder since like classy nightclubs aren't as popular anymore. Or right. Whatever, like what would the modern day equivalent? Oh, you be? know what it is? It's the, the um, uh, the David Gordon Green slow mo dance scene. You know, what I'm talking about that he always does. Like, there's <laughs> in like all of his movies where there's I like guess. music playing. All of his yeah. more studio movies, I right. guess, where there's like music playing and you're seeing people partying in slow motion. He even did it in Our Brand is Crisis. Um, but does that apply to other movies? Or yes, just his? yes. I feel like that okay. sort of that sort of thing has shown up in like the 21 Jump Street movies. Do whenever there's like a party scene, now, right? Okay, I it's think always I know what like, you mean. Yeah. yeah, like dance song, LMFAO type. Of, of of music, you know, um, uh, and usually a lot of slow motion shots of sure. people dancing or like bottles. Not as fun as popping. a nightclub dance number, though. Um, not as fun. I think I think also has worn out its welcome, yeah. you know. Uh, but uh, yeah, maybe that is the equivalent. Yeah, we'll see. Anyway. I don't know. <laughs> well, check in, the, you know, the 60th annual TCM <laughs> Fest um, when there's they show 21 Jump Street <laughs> <laughs> and our brand is Crisis. Yep. Uh, Night World was okay. I didn't love it. Uh, I really liked the. Um, uh, I'm a sucker generally for the all in one night type of sure. uh, type of of movies. I liked uh, the the. I thought it had a lot of verve to it. I think with the musical numbers, um, it also was and, only an hour, which always helps. Yes, that that is nice. Uh, and I thought some some strong uh, dialogue. Um, I like the scene between Tim the doorman and the cop at the beginning. Yeah, that's good. Um, even if the cop is a little condescending to the black doorman, right. but again, what do you expect? Um, uh, he, yeah, and I guess I just like uh, um, I like Boris Karloff a, a lot. I think I always like his presence. Yeah. Um, 
I had coincidentally just recently watched because Screen Factory put out a Blu-ray of um, Robert Wise's The Body Snatcher, which okay. is uh, yeah. uh, Boris Karloff movie in which he is a villain, but not a monster. Right. It's not one of his monster movies. Uh, and so I guess I was kind of, uh, I'm kind of in the mood lately for uh, non-makeup Boris Karloff. It's a lot of good stuff out there. Uh, yeah, I, I think as often happens in these kind of movies that are about like a, a big scene at once, you know, the, uh, the male romantic lead is the most boring character in the movie. Like Lou Ayers, I know he's a big star and everything, yeah. but he's the least interesting character in yeah. the movie. Yeah, very to me. common problem of that era, I think. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, I, I definitely, because we, we didn't even talk about the whole other thing about how uh, Karloff's wife is cheating on him with the choreographer. Oh, yeah. Um, and then she ends up essentially trying to set him up to get killed, and it backfires and gets them both killed. Spoilers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so yeah, there's a lot going on and I liked that. Um, yeah, I think I probably liked it a little more than you just for, uh, uh, atmosphere and style. Oh, it had plenty of that for sure. Yeah. Anyway, we're spending too long on the movie. You're uh, right. You're right. And you saw something else. I, I went, uh, I went to after night world. I of course went to the Cabo Wabo Cantina to have myself some tacos. I had very I on to brand have to go there every time. Uh, uh, but you saw another movie. I instead hoofed it up the hill and saw Sergeant York, uh, which is Howard Hawks 1941 mega hit. Uh, about the life and times of one Alvin York, who went from a Tennessee mountain man sharpshooter to a World War One hero, despite being at the start of the war, a uh, pretty committed pacifist. Um, and the film, for all its faults, I think it takes seriously his pacifism and the struggle he went through in order to eventually arrive at the position he was in uh, of killing 25 German soldiers and capturing 130 more because he was an amazing sharpshooter. Uh, he pretty much single-handedly like, won this event and was a huge celebrity at the time. The guy who produced this movie spent 20 years, I think, trying to put it on screen. Uh, York kept refusing because he was a very uh, uh, humble mountain man and didn't see the use of Hollywood until the rise of fascism. And then he was like, well, if it aid the, Germ- the cause to defeat Germany, then sure. And sure enough, it did. Uh, apparently, people signed up in droves after seeing the movie. And you can see why. Uh, the war scenes are very rousing in that very kind of 1940s uh, propaganda patriotic way. Um, But like I said, it does, I think, take seriously the moral weight of his decision almost to a fault where it's clear the right decision is not to go killing people in war, but it's like, what are you going to do? We got (laughs) to kill people in war. Um, But also the fact that that leaves it somewhat unresolved is I think to its credit, uh, the most I think it also accidentally contains the most telling scene about kind of American history and American propaganda where uh, York's like, you know, he's about to get promoted because he's such an amazing shooter. And he's like, well, I don't really want to be promoted. I don't really believe in this war. But, you know, I don't you know, he didn't have a choice. He got drafted. Um, and spear officers going through the Bible with him and York has a counter verse to everything. It's clear he knows the Bible much better than the spear officer. So another officer in the room is like let's give you this book instead. He gives him a book of American history. <laughs> you can feel at that moment, the decision that, uh, let's just say the conservative culture has made to choose American history over the Bible every time. Wow. Uh, all right. Should we move on? Yeah. Okay. So, um, Oh, you're up again. We're on to Friday. Uh, but I, I've seen this movie. I know it's a, it's one of those rare pre-code. Right. <laughs> Very obscure. Uh, no, I started my Friday early evening with the sound of music, which I'm pretty sure I've never seen in full. I'm, I'm sure I saw scenes of it back in like grade school, but I really don't think I'd seen the whole movie and getting to see it on a pristine 70 millimeter print was, uh, quite ideal. I really loved it. I mean, 
the songs are just as rousing, even though I'd experienced them through osmosis a thousand different times before seeing it. But the way that Robert Wise shoots and the way they're performed within the movie, like they feel completely fresh the first time. Um, so there was no like tough familiarity, I guess. And that first half I think is pretty much perfect. The second act, I can see why some people would think it drags because there's only like one new song. Most of them are reprises, hmm. but I think the, f- the way they're reprised emphasize, um, a certain mourning and sadness that is said in the second act and kind of twist the songs to be more nationally minded than familial minded. And that shows the way the characters are growing and the way the times around them are changing. Hmm. Uh, so I think it's a smarter movie than I'd seen it previously given credit for. Uh, but it is also just incredibly touching. And there are several times when I not going to be too proud to admit I teared up. All right. Um, so next up for me is 1948's uh, Open Secret, which is a um, a political noir film or social political noir film. Um, and this was... Uh, the, we haven't talked about who's been doing the introductions, but this was introduced by sort of the resident noir guy, Eddie Muller. The czar of noir. <laughs> the czar of noir. Um, and uh, yeah, so he had a, some fun things to say about it in terms of sort of framing, um, you, you know, the idea, the reason, you know, part of the reason there's so many noir movies is because of the time they were just cranking them out right. at the time. And so he was sort of being, making sure to set our expectations. This was not an A picture. Right. This was a super cheap picture. It literally has like three or four locations in the entire yeah. movie. Um, and a handful of, of speaking parts. But, um, uh, but it also is weirdly, sadly, um, uh, relevant uh, today in that it's about uh, essentially neo-Nazis I and mean, that term didn't exist yet because it's 1948 but um, uh, John Ireland uh, who's an actor that I uh, only really know from All the King's Men uh, have um, you seen Red River? I've never seen Red River oh, yeah. See that. Um, yeah I like Montgomery Clift uh, I've never seen that but I read uh, Montgomery Clift biography uh, All right. about how <laughs> how much he and John Wayne didn't get along. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, uh, John Ireland and, um, he's married to, so his character is uh, recently married to an actor, to a, a character played by Jane Randolph. And on their sort of honeymoon, they decide to stop in the small town to see one of his army buddies. Uh, and just before they arrive, his army buddy is, he disappears. He's, he's killed essentially. Uh, and basically, um, they, in classic noir fashion, they get sort of, uh, roped into following the, the, the clues and getting deeper into this underworld. And they realize what his friend had become involved in a local chapter of essentially Nazis. Right. Uh, and they're, they were, uh, the movie doesn't, you know, beat around the bush about, it doesn't actually call them Nazis, I guess, but doesn't beat on the bush about the fact that they are anti-immigrant and specifically anti-Jew. Right. Um, uh, so, uh, it, it felt, it felt really, you know, given recent like, uh, shootings and there's people painting swastikas on things that I just read about today. And just, uh, it's, uh, uh sad how relevant <laughs> this, right. this was, but, um, it is a really great little, little noir um full of noir type 
characters, um, most of whom are, are Nazis, it turns out. Um, but then you've got the, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the sort of comic relief, like batty, hard of hearing boarding house landlady character to Classic. give you some comic <laughs> relief there. Um, uh, you've also got the bartender at the neo-Nazi bar. I keep calling them Nazis, but that's not what, the, but, uh, is a guy who is, probably doesn't weigh much more than I do that everyone calls fatso, <laughs> which also felt kind of 1948 to me. But it's weird. There are characters in the movie who are bigger than he is, but right. he's the one. Like, maybe I just feel maybe like he they, used to be like much bigger, but could yeah. shape anything. <laughs> uh, but uh, it, yeah, uh, so surprisingly um, uh, politically minded noir film. Yeah. It's, I mean, I think a lot of noir dealt with the idea that just because we're done with war doesn't mean the war is done with us. Right, yeah. I, but I feel like not always so literally. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, but uh, one movie we saw at Noir City last year, uh, Act of Violence, yeah. was in kind of similar territory. That's a little more explicitly of like processing things that happened during the war. Right. Oh, wait, I've seen Act of Violence. That's a great movie. Yeah, yeah it's, it's yeah. really good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 All right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you said the title. I was like, wait, which one is that? It's a very generic title. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway. Well, we, all, we all saw the next movie, which is another noir. Sort of. Well. I will, full disclosure, <laughs> that I ran my own little shadow TCM fest at home in terms of things I <laughs> okay. either couldn't get into or didn't, wouldn't have made in time. So, yes, I want to be honest with people. <laughs> I watched this at home. But so yes, you I didn't, didn't see it. the nitrate. Didn't see the I didn't see the nitrate. I'm, no, sorry. Which I think... This might have been the only nitrate that I saw. What uh, what other ones were nitrate this year? Uh, um, Bachelor and Bobby Soxer, uh, Dolly Sisters, and Samson and Delilah. Okay, so this was the only nitrate that I saw, and it was 1948's Roadhouse, uh, directed. God damn it, uh, Jean uh, Negulescu. That's what I was going to guess. Negulescu. Negulescu. I'm people people who know that who that is will know what I you're think trying to say. Yeah. Okay. Um, and starring Ida Lupino. Uh, and Richard Woodmark and uh, again, Wild. some some boring guy in the desert romantic lead. <laughs> yeah, I was like, Cornel Wild doesn't do it for me. And then I was like, okay, what else has he been in? And I thought about other things I've seen him in. And then I'm just like, you know what? No, sorry, just yeah, just no. This like is, he was in he's in Lever to Heaven, and I completely forgot. No, I haven't seen that in a long time. So uh, like, you know, I don't know. But I mean, this is a movie. I mean. Richard Widmark is swinging for the fences and I love it. He, oh, yeah. he goes, well, it's he interesting. goes completely insane. Yeah, but he starts the movie like quite mild manner. I was like, yeah, this yeah. is really a departure for Richard, Richard Widmark. Why'd they cast this guy in that? And yeah, then, like, the they, second they, half kicks in. It's yeah. like, he's full Widmark. And, like, uh, I know anyone's going to look really boring next to Richard Widmark, but even so, <laughs> there have been people who held their own. Well, uh, Ida Lupino, uh, yeah. for example, oh, for sure. is, is Lupino, great. For and sure. I'll, I'll mention something else that I... I don't know. I, uh, sometimes when I'm at these sort of things, I wish that my wife were with me because my wife is not a movie person like I am. And sometimes I feel like I'm the only person who's outside of these things. So the, uh, the woman, uh, and I love this woman who introduced Roadhouse. Um, I forget her name. No, I don't remember either. But she wrote the Liberating Hollywood book. Right, So they just did, um, recently, the UCLA Film and Television Archive did a series of uh, screenings inspired by her movie about 70s female filmmakers, or her book about 70s female filmmakers, and I went to a couple nights of that. So I always enjoyed her, but she made a joke about Ida Lupino burns up the screen. (laughs) Not literally, it is nitrate. And I was like, (laughs) and everyone laughed, and I was like, I wish there were someone here for me to roll my eyes at. (laughs) That's what what my wife wife would be like. I think she didn't mean that as a joke. I think she stumbled into it. Okay. In um, fairness to the 
woman introducing it. But I guess uh, most of the uh, attempts at humor by the uh, by the oh for sure uh, by it's the people very, doing the intros. I mean, are, it's a little shaky. It's a very nerdy crowd. We yeah, all know that. Yeah. We all accept that. It's yeah. So I always just think about. I always imagine these things from the point of view of someone like my right. wife who likes good movies but doesn't live in that world twenty four seven. Right. Uh, and so uh, yeah, that was just one example that I wanted to to point out. Um, I won't go into detail on the guy who introduced all through the night. But uh, he was a lot of fun, but he was the biggest dork. Oh, in a Michael Schlesinger. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he is the biggest dork. Yeah, yeah. it was a lot of fun. I'm um, not yeah. Really good play. Anyway, well, let's go back to, to Roadhouse. Right. This is a good movie. Uh, uh, yeah, this is 1948 Roadhouse, not the 1989 Roadhouse. Right, no um, relation. Uh, and it's about uh, I Lupino gets hired as a lounge singer, once again, uh, um, in uh, Lounge singer and pianist, actually. Yeah. Pianist, and it yes. looks like she's really playing the piano in the movie, I think. I don't, I don't know. know. Like the way it's shot, it seems like it had to okay. have been her. Okay. But it's also funny because I was listening to her sing and I was like, oh, I don't know that she can like sing in the traditional sense. And there's even a line. Yeah, they call it out. It, yeah. They call it out, which is kind of amazing to me that they didn't dub her because that was a very common practice back then. But sure. But well, the fact that they... from the hetero male point of view, what she's doing might not be great singing, but it works. Well, yeah, it's very I think, sexy. I think the line in the movie is totally accurate. I think the line is even like she does more without a voice than anyone. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, something right. like that. Yeah. But that's totally accurate is because she has such presence and yeah. I'm not sure I found it alluring. Exactly. That's I definitely <laughs> did. <laughs> You're more of a did. smoker and she has a very smoky voice. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and the joke of the passage of time because she, yeah. uh, every time she, she, she plays, she lights a cigarette and then sets it on the piano. Yeah. And so it shows the bit cause she's hired for like six weeks or whatever. So it shows the passage of time by, you see the burn cigarette burns and, yeah. on the top yeah. of the piano. It's a great, great moment. Um, yeah, so she gets hired by Richard Woodmark, who owns this this uh, this roadhouse that has a which yeah, looks bar like and a bowling alley. The place in Bad Times at the El Royale, by the way. A little bit. Oh, I didn't see that, but yeah, it, it reminded me a lot of the titular establishment there. Um, and then Cornell Wilde plays the manager, I guess. Yeah. Richard Woodmark has essentially hired Ida Lupino to woo her, and of course, she falls in love with. Cornell Wilde. Right. Instead, they fall in love with one another. Uh, he very reluctantly. Um, and uh, Richard Woodmark goes insane. And there's more to the plot than that. It's, it actually is a surprisingly plotty movie. It takes quite a twist in the second half. <laughs> yeah. It Very really unexpected. Does. Uh, but all to good ends. Uh, it only gets more and more clever and strange and uh, alluring. Very surprising manipulation of the legal system. Yeah. I'll say that. Yeah. Yeah. And the one actor uh, we haven't mentioned is Celeste Holm, who yes. plays Susie. Yeah, she's she's awesome. great in the movie. I don't really know her work. I don't either. She's... Uh, She's a rat. She's in a lot of stuff, usually in supporting roles. I don't think she got a ton of lead roles. Right. Um, she might have won an Oscar. I don't remember for what, unfortunately. Oh, well, well um, according to the movie, she's just too fat. <laughs> oh, right. That's another one of those things. Like, yeah, she's yeah. beautiful woman. For per- perfectly slim woman, but... Uh, but also, it is a very noir movie, and kind of one of the noir elements is that she, too, has a crush on Cornell Wilde. Right. All these ladies going for Cornell Wilde. I don't yeah. get it. Um, but that's never really addressed or resolved. She kind of just pines for him, and that's that, which is very, very noirish, I think. Um, also at one point somebody I won't say who gets a marriage license without the other party <laughs> present and I found that very troubling <laughs> could you do that back then is it like is it I like Don Draper sending Betty Draper to the psychiatrist and getting a report like I you could guess just- 
Someone just know. shows up and says, I have this marriage license. I'm going to surprise them with it. Yeah. I was just very troubled by that. And then calls him up to say, we're getting married. Yeah. Uh, very troubling. All right. I'll move on to yeah. Oath of the Night, um, which was... Yes, Michael Schlesinger was uh, a lot of fun, uh, very dorky. But All the Night was one of my favorite. I like, like I said, I liked all the movies. One of my favorite sort of discoveries, a movie that I didn't really know anything about. Um, and I guess because it's a Humphrey Bogart movie that came out in the midst of all the like, it's it it, it came out. It was shot before Maltese Falcon had been released. But it was so it was the one he made right after Maltese Falcon, but it hadn't been released yet. And the studio still wasn't sure about him as a leading man, apparently. Um, but he's like more of an antihero here. But then it was so there's Maltese Falcon right after this would have been uh, Casablanca and um, uh, what's the other early 40s one that I'm missing? High Sierra? Uh, yeah, High Sierra would have been right after Casablanca, right? Yeah, somewhere around there. Um, I mean, he was in a lot at that uh, time. Yeah, so, um, but All Through the Night is a. Uh, I, IMDb has it listed under comedy. I don't know that I'd go that far, but it is very funny. It's a very clever movie in which Humphrey Bogart plays a sort of gangster, uh, gangster boss who has a, um, uh, a very, um, uh, specific, like movie gangsters always have very specific, uh, idiosyncrasies, you know, uh, foibles, peccadillos. And he likes to have, he goes to a restaurant in the morning and he has a slice of cheesecake for breakfast. And it has to be the cheesecake provided by the neighborhood bakery. Like he set it up. So his neighborhood bakery delivers cheesecakes in the morning to this restaurant just for him to have one. Why doesn't he eat at the bakery? Sorry. Just, uh, I guess because his, uh, his business is, in this fancier right. part of town. So one morning, uh, there's no cheesecake to be found, and it turns out it's because, um, again, Nazis, fifth colonists, this is during the war, um, have killed the baker. And so basically, okay. uh, basically he... That was the Nazis' mission, as we all know. <laughs> um, Take away the cheesecake. Uh, well, Peter Lorre in particular killed him, and then you've got Conrad Veidt as the leader of the, of the fifth colonists, so you've got uh, a pre- cursor to Casablanca the next year. Um, in fact, there is, they pointed out there's a reference to Ca- a reference, a potential reference to all through the night in Casablanca when Conrad Veidt is talking about Nazis in, and he names cities and he says, New York and Humphrey Bogart says there are certain neighborhoods of New York. I wouldn't advise you to try and invade. It's apparently supposed to be sort of an in joke to these two had just tussled the year before, yeah. uh, as Nazis in, in, in New York. Um, and so he, uh, uh, basically starts following the crumbs, no pun intended, of this murdered baker and uh, finds out that he rescues a lounge singer who is a um, German lounge singer whose father is in Dachau. They mentioned Dachau by name in the wow. movie more than once. Um, uh, uh, and, and, and so is being forced to help Conrad Veidt and Peter Lorre and all these other creeps, um, or they'll kill her father in Dachau again. Weird. Um, but I don't know that they necessarily knew they didn't. Yeah. How, what they were playing with by mentioning Dachau. No, not, I mean, movies of that era in Hollywood and even in great Britain had a very weird relationship with the concentration camps because they knew they existed. Yeah. But sometimes in movies, they'd just be like a small inconvenience in the characters' lives. They get like temporarily detained in these concentration camps. Yeah. And then they have like meat cutes there. It, it, it was all until like the end of the war, the relationship with the concentration camps was very weird. Yeah. Okay. Well, this is a uh, part for the course then. Um, 
but again, the movie is, is uh, it's a it's a very lively sort of has a caper type feel um, of uh, Bogart as a because he's he's an antihero. He's a gangster. So he's trying to stop these 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 Nazis. But he's also um, constantly being chased by the cops and other gangsters. Um, so it has it does have kind of like a great Muppet caper type of feel of like everyone like sort of coming together at the end. It's like the. Uh, so Bogart, Bogart's gang, a rival gang, cops, and a couple of hick businessmen from Wyoming that Bogart <laughs> and his and his uh, cohorts were trying to fleece. Sure, all uh, all like find out there's Nazis or whatever, and they all like go take them on together. Nice. Um, it's also a. Uh, um, Early appearances by both um, Jackie Gleason and Phil Silver. All right. Silver or Silvers? I don't know. Uh, uh, anyway, he's got a pretty big part uh, in the in the movie. Um, yeah, so it's a lot of fun. It's very funny. Uh, that's all. Well, speaking of a lot of fun and very funny. Hey, I get to stop talking. For yeah, a lot of fun, very funny, and crazy ending. Yeah. A lot of people gathering together for a crazy yeah. ending, too. Uh, Julie and I started our Saturday morning with uh, the Myrna Loy William Powell film Double Wedding. Uh, we're slowly chipping away at our Myrna Loy William Powell list. They made 14 films together. Yeah. Um, Ileana Douglas introduced it, got our requisite Ileana sighting. I didn't yeah. see, I, I saw her this year. I didn't see an introduction. Yeah. This year. So she introduced it and she's like, does anyone know how many movies these two made? And before she even finished asking the question, <laughs> the entire audience was like 14. And she's like, you guys are no fun. <laughs> uh, but it's, this movie's awesome. Uh, it was very sadly made, uh, during the making of it, uh, yeah, Gene Harlow died and she was uh, William Powell's fiance. So allegedly he wasn't happy with his performance. He felt like he was just sad and depressed throughout the movie, but it really doesn't show in the final product. Uh, he plays kind of a bohemian artist who lives in a trailer outside a diner. Uh, I don't think it takes place in downtown LA, but the shooting location is very clearly downtown LA. If you know, downtown LA. Yeah. I think they say it's New York. Is it was in New York? I was trying well, to remember. I feel like there were just vague geographical references okay. that made it seem that way. But even a bo- for a bohemian living in a trailer, he's still very debonair. Oh, of course. Yeah. Well, what year is the movie? 37. Okay. Yeah. So um, black and white. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, I was going to say, you can always tell when people are trying to fake downtown or fake Los Angeles or something else because we have blue street signs here and no one else has blue street oh, signs. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's more like they just shoot on this parking lot in downtown yeah. LA, but it looks like every parking lot you drive past in downtown LA. Yeah. Um, anyway, so that's what he plays. Uh, Myrna Loy plays this very well-to-do society woman who owns a dress shop, I think. Yes. Yeah, she owns a gown shop. Uh, she's arranging marriage for her younger sister, her younger sister wants to be an actress who's under the tutelage of William Powell. Uh, and all these crazy people all get thrown together. Uh, most notably William Powell becomes attracted to Merle Loy because he detects a note of hate in her face, <laughs> which I find very compelling and very accurate. Yeah. Um, she's like George Costanza. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's a really good time. The screenwriter is Joe Swirling, who among other things wrote, it's a wonderful life, pride of the Yankees, leave her to heaven and the musical of guys and dolls. So very legit credits there. Um, yeah. It was really interesting to see Powell playing that kind of character because even though like he just, it's one of those things where the more and more he talks about his life, the crazier it gets because he like lists all these places he lived and all these crazy things he did for money. My and it's favorite just like, of which is he, runs into an older woman later turns out they know each other from paris where he used to be a tour guy and he's like i showed people around the sewers and he was so excited (laughs) about the fact that he used to just walk in sewers all day 
Yeah, but he just like has this crazy life. But again, he's not backing down of his normal persona. He's still that very debonair, very charming, but just has this crazy life and lives in a trailer. Um, so that was fun. Um, also, the guy who plays the fiance of Myrna Loy's sister was really funny. He's yeah. this actor named John Beale who didn't seem to have like a ton of huge roles, but he just plays this guy who's like just a dork. But he his comic timing is like incredible. He's supposed to be this like totally ineffectual type, the total opposite of William Powell. You know, he has no yumph, as they say. Yes, they and call he's it just, yumph. Like, very accommodating. Everyone was like, "Well, okay." And he, that kind of character would seem so uncompelling, and seems like something an actor wouldn't want to take on because there's no like star verve there at all. But he totally nails it. Yeah, and the finale again, it's unreal. Like if anyone has seen, they recently. Um, I think either found, restored, is it called Fight of the Century? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. The Laurel and Hardy thing that is basically considered oh, right. like the biggest pie fight ever committed to film. So this does not have a pie fight, but basically it reminded me of that in terms of escalation. Yeah. Because I've, it's rare that I've seen so many things piled on at the end of a comedy the way this does. Mm. And, you know, it's moving at like a pretty not like slow pace, but a pretty moderate like screwball comedy pace before that. And then the ending just goes for it. With probably about 20 people packed into William Powell's trailer. To yes, start they're with. all packed into a trailer and then people from the street start packing into the parking lot around the trailer. Yeah. And there it's, yeah, it's really good if you can see it. Um, the one, one random thing is at one point William Powell says Gorgonzola is the pearl of cheeses. And I'm pretty sure that a guy behind me at full volume went, it is. <laughs> How did I miss that? Uh, that's it's, great. it's possible I miss, but he definitely exclaimed yeah. something and I'm pretty sure it was that. So yeah, check it out. All right. Um, I saw, now I, I normally don't, I'm not as diehard like uh see stuff on celluloid as uh you guys tend to be uh at tcm but i did of the, i saw 10 movies only three of them were dcps so my first dcp of the festival was um kind hearts and coronets directed by robert hamer hammer i'm not sure how you say his name uh 1946 i don't know something like that um i think 49 49 that sounds right yeah uh, and it was just basically because uh, this is a movie that I've been meaning to see for years and years and had never seen before. Uh, so I figured I might as well cross it off my list. Um, and yeah, you guys have seen it uh, a yes. while ago. I think we saw it back in college. Right? I have okay. seen it twice. I'm okay. a fan. You are not. I a think fan. it's okay. Oh, I think it's fantastic. Yes, I'm <laughs> um, a big fan. Yeah, I'm a big fan of dark comedy, and this is that's what that's what this is. It's a movie about a. Um, uh, a very low on the list uh, heir to a dukedom who decides to kill his way up the list. Um, uh, and he, and it's uh, the actor's name is Dennis Price. Is that right? Yeah. I think so. uh, and he narrates the, the movie, the narration alone is, uh, is, is very funny. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of very deadpan murder in the yes. movie. And I find that sort of thing uh, really funny. I will say, I'm not sure Julie, since you've seen it more recently, what version you've seen? Because this was the UK version. Yeah, I know the endings are different. Apparently very slightly. The the US version, basically, the UK version has an ending that is implied, and I guess the US censors were like, no, you need to do more than imply this sort of comeuppance. You need to literalize. Uh, But there's another thing in which there's a scene in which there is a conversation around the child's rhyme, eeny, meeny, miny, moe, 
And as we all know, right, catch a tiger by the toe. And apparently for the U.S. version, that's they dubbed it to say catch a tiger by the toe. But that's not what they said in the movie. They said the older fashion version, which is the N word instead of oh. tiger. So there is. OK, there is. So it's this very sort of like you spend the whole movie laughing and there's scene. This is the scene right near the end where two characters just keep saying the N word to each oh, other. Yikes. And it's like it, it took a lot. Uh, I, I I credit. Um, and I can't remember the guy who. uh introduced the movie he's like a newer tcm host he's a younger guy dave, dave carger? carger dave carger yes uh he did give a uh heads up at the beginning which i'm really glad he did because it would have yeah. been even more jarring otherwise um yeah a weird uh, uh weird thing um but uh the other thing of course is notable at the movie that i can't believe i didn't mention is that uh uh, Alec Guinness plays all of the victims, including at least one woman. Yes. Uh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, a, a suffragette who, yes. uh, uh, goes up in an hot air balloon and then Dennis Price shoots an arrow through the balloon <laughs> and she falls to her death. Yes. Uh, they mentioned technically he plays nine characters because there is a painting of one of their late ancestors <laughs> that Alec Guinness actually got into a costume and sat for. Oh, so okay. there is like a ninth <laughs> Das Coin family member that he uh, portrayed in the movie, but he's okay. not really anyway. Um, uh, yeah. And it's a uh, it, full of remarkable performances. I mean, yeah. the, the, the fact that he's um, in some ways, like it, he's, creating these full characters you i kind of keep forgetting that it's him maybe not when it's the woman it's very clearly right. alleginous like, dresses a woman but um he's playing them in much different ages you know there's the two there's the the first one who gets killed who's a total asshole and then there's the nice idiot uh, photography enthusiast who are both like supposed to be the age that Guinness actually was, which was like mid to late thirties, I think at the time. And he's up to playing like this senile parson. Uh, and, uh, you don't really see, it doesn't really feel that much again, except for the woman character. It doesn't feel like a bunch of dress up, you know, yeah. he really is playing these, these eight characters. It's, uh, really impressive. The movie's very, very funny. Um, and, uh, also, I mean, I, I guess I mentioned Ida Lupino. I could just keep mentioning women in in, in movies that I thought were sexy. <laughs> um, were you in? Okay, blonde or brunette in this one? The blonde. Okay. Even though I hate her. Okay. <laughs> no, yeah, the brunette is a nice lady, and she's yeah. very pretty. Yeah. But in terms of just like sexuality, the blonde, uh, who is shallow and awful, but so is he, obviously. I feel um, like I remember them both being a little saucy. I don't think the brunette was like just plain, but I could be misremembering. But she's the teetotaler, the okay. brunette, which is, I guess, to me is like <laughs> you might as well be. It's very schoolmarmish, I guess. <laughs> okay. um, uh, but um, yeah, the uh, the 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 other woman that he has the lifelong infatuation with. Um, I oh, sorry, I meant to look up the actress's name. Um, uh, Joan Greenwood is her name. Um, she's great. And they, I like that they're both awful people and they're kind of, it's almost like a weird, like, Oh, they deserve each other. Yeah. They both suck. <laughs> uh, cause, and then there's a lot of like nuance to the character too. Uh, as much as it's a comedy, there's like, there's a moment where, cause his whole history is that he, his, his mom, who was a member of this family was disowned for marrying a commoner or something. And she dies penniless or whatever. And, he has this line about like, that's when I decided to, cause he's already been talking about killing all these people up until then. Right. And he's like, 
he was like, that's when I decided to do it to avenge her death. But there's in the subtlety of the performance, you can realize now that's just the excuse you need. Yeah. You were ready to kill your way into dukedom yeah. for years leading up to this. This is just what made you able to justify it to yourself. Uh, yeah. Great movie. Great performances. Glad I saw it. We also we did see the stage adaptation. They made a musical of it. Yeah. Oh. Um, called A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder, it's which is very fun. And did you see it with Jefferson Mays? No. And, okay, because that's he was the Q and A was with Jeff, Jefferson oh, Mays, cool. Parker, and Jefferson Mays, who I guess played it on Broadway. Is that or I London? I think so. Yeah, maybe? we saw the touring production in but, LA, so I think it was a different cast. Okay, but, but Jefferson yeah. Mays uh, recently seen in Bell to Buster, Buster Scruggs yeah. uh, as Mister Longabow. I can't remember Giles. I can't remember his, the character's first name. Um, uh, yeah, he played the Alec in his part in the stage version. He was interviewed. He was he was good. I don't know. I mostly just uh, look at Twitter during the That's TCM intros. <laughs> uh, well, anyway, uh, I saw next uh, The Great K&A Train Robbery, which was one of a double feature of Tom Mick's silent westerns. I only stayed for the first one because I had to rush off to get in line for what I knew was going to be a popular pre-code show. Um but this was an introduction I was very hooked into. Uh, I think it was introduced by Scott McGee, who's a guy with TCM. And this was apparently a program that he really championed and really wanted to do, even though even people at TCM largely didn't know who Tom Mix was. Uh, I certainly didn't. Mm-hmm. And I was very glad for the introduction. Uh, he was apparently the biggest Western star of the silent era. So popular, in fact, that they started a radio show in the mid-30s that he was never on, but was still called like the Tom Mix Radio Hour or whatever, and which continued for decades well after he died. And what? had no, yeah. So even though he was only popular in silent films, which, as we are commonly told, didn't have a great legacy after sound films came in, uh, he was re- remained in the public consciousness for decades after he had any claim to relevance. Apparently he couldn't even be in sound films because a bullet went through his throat and damaged it. And he had a horrible speaking voice. Oh man. Um, wow. Yeah. That's so, one of the more metal reasons not to do. Yeah. Sound right. Films. <laughs> um, I don't know if he like, didn't do any, but he certainly was not a sound star and that's largely why his name has been forgotten in history, but he did like, he was one of those guys who just worked constantly did hundreds of these Westerns. Um, and was kind of most famous for his stunt work. Though I think by our kind of the modern standards, not only of stunt work in general, but even of silent stunt work, the stunt work in the Great Canadian Train Robbery doesn't even hold a candle to like Buster Keaton kind of stuff. Uh, and you can tell he's going for a similar kind of rhythm. There's kind of callbacks throughout these action sequences and props get left in one place and picked up in another. And there's a certain cleverness to the structure of them, but the filmmaking just isn't quite sharp enough to be fully engaging. Uh, there's interesting elements to it. I, you know, always enjoy a good uh, horse sidekick who's way too smart for its own horse good. Um, <laughs> in this case, it's Tony the Wonder Horse, which is a great horse name. Um, and Tom Mix has a sort of vagabond uh, sidekick who accompanies him throughout the adventure, who's a lot of fun. Uh, but for the most part, it's a perfectly serviceable Western, but I haven't seen that many silent Westerns. And between my unfamiliar with the genre and seeing it with live organ score. Uh, this is kind of like kind of routine pleasure that TCM fest can make a lot more engaging than it would be just watching it at home. All right. Uh, next up, I'm the one who went to see Leo McCary's 1939 love affair, which is not the f- only one here who tried. Alas. Oh. Yes. You? I, were you not aware that I was shut out of that? No, I don't think I. Oh, that. I was texting with Kyle. He was trying. I was trying to have him be my man on the inside, but it didn't work out. So yes, I was turned away. Oh, that's a that's a shame because it was. Uh, 
I mean, I'd say it was one of my favorites of the festival. I liked them all, but uh, this yeah. one was, it, it is really good. It's uh, the first version of An Affair to Remember, which Liam right. McCary would then would remake like uh, 18 years later, something like that. Um, and it stars Irene Dunn and Charles Boyer. Is that how you say I think it? so. Um, and they are both on a boat. They uh, are they're both betrothed to other people. They have this sort of uh, eight and a half day, very specific eight and a half day um, <laughs> flirtation, getting to know each other on the boat, and they decide, uh, you know what? If we're still feeling this in six months, let's meet at the top of the uh, of the Empire State Building, um, and then we'll ditch our uh, betrothed and, uh, and be with each other. And on the way to the Empire State Building, Irene Dunn gets hit by a car and uh, temporarily loses the use of her legs. And then this is the only part that is weird to me is this whole, the whole, which I guess is the same. The and if I remember is like the same screenplay essentially. Right. Um, so this is the same there, but her whole pride thing of like I don't want, I don't want to find him again until I can walk again mm. feels a little bit like ableist. I guess a little bit. I mean, um, it was what nineteen thirty nine. Yeah, it doesn't make it okay. I'm not saying it's okay. I'm <laughs> saying like in the attitudes of the time. Right. And especially for a woman, uh, women are expected to present themselves a certain way. Right. Right. Also, there might be a difference between this is how the movie feels. And this is how she feels like maybe the movie's like, this is kind of dumb of her. I don't know. I didn't see it, but I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's on the, uh, on the edge. It could be. Okay. Um, but, uh, really this is just a movie like so many of these, the reason we love movies of this era is you had this era of movie star and I feel like chemistry was a different came in different flavors back then than it sure, does yeah. now. I'm not going to say better or worse cause I don't want to be one of those, uh, idiots, but, uh, <laughs> but it was better. <laughs> okay. Uh, but this is really just a movie of just spending an hour and 45 minutes watching Irene Dunn and right. Charles Boyer just sort of bounce off each other and look at each other. And it's, uh, it's, uh, really, uh, intoxicating and it has, uh, again, I'm assuming I haven't seen it. If I remember, I'm assuming it's the same ending. Um, but it has an ending that, uh, I think, um, like you said about sound of music, I, I definitely teared up a little bit yeah. at the end of, of, of love affair. Uh, really great. Um, but, uh, wait, is there one in between? Okay. So you have something to say. Yeah. So I'll say, speaking of intros, <laughs> Dana Delaney, I truly love Dana Delaney. I loved when you went on Battlestar Galactica, um, but you went on way too long <laughs> because yeah, I was also trying to get to a pre-code gem that I made it into, but I barely made it in. Just and I, barely. I partially blame Dana Delaney. I also blame not that people can help, but TCM brings an older crowd. Sure. So getting out of the theater often tends to take longer than it would. Yeah that's not anybody's fault. I'm not mad at anybody except for Dana Delaney. Um, <laughs> but I, I almost, now my sworn enemy. <laughs> yeah. I almost missed the, the, the next movie on my list, uh, because this is one of those screenings that went, uh, at least 10 minutes, uh, past. Right. Um, but then the next one started way late too. So, uh, but we have one in between there from Julie. I do borderline parkour to get out of the theaters. I will like (laughs) leap over rows and bounce off. You got to really get into it anyway. So after I was turned away from love affair, I was like, I didn't know what to do. So I looked at the schedule and saw that a raisin in the sun was starting in like half an hour. I could maybe make it. So I booked it down to the Egyptian and I did make it and I got a great seat. So, um, 
Risen in the Sun is based on the seminal play by Lorraine Hansberry, which was the first play by an African-American woman ever produced on Broadway. Um, She also wrote the screenplay. Um, So the play was 1959. The movie was 1961. They had a Q&A beforehand with uh, Louis Gossett Jr., who was in both the play and the movie. He's like in his 80s or something. But this was like a QA and a where I'm like, okay, he is like working the audience. He like is very charming, very informative. So like, that was a good Q&A. And he kept it pretty short, so no Did he talk about Iron Eagle at all? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he was talking about how when he was, like, coming up as an actor, he was, his mentors was kind of this group of, like, Brooklyn bohemians that included, like, Neil Simon and Barbara Streisand. So when he originally got the role in the play, the director told him he had to ditch his, quote, Brooklyn Jewish accent, <laughs> which I found very amusing. Um... And he said in the play, so the play's about a family, and they're very combative. They have a lot of tensions and issues around various things. And the thing that's interesting about the play, according to him, is that you can't really definitively say it's any one character's story. So everyone has a very developed, I mean, they're bit characters, but everyone in the family has a very developed arc. They have their goals, their frustrations, and like... Even I would hard, be hard-pressed to be like, it's this person's story. So he said that Lorraine Hansberry and then the directors of both the play and the movie kind of played that to their advantage and took the fact that you don't really know whose story it is and made the actors kind of play against each other in that way. So the actors are playing against each other because they all want the screen time, and then subsequently their characters are then fighting for what they want. So it creates this very interesting dynamic. Um, It also kind of depicts all of the characters' viewpoints as valid, which I always appreciate when a movie does that. You know, people come down on very different sides of issues, and it kind of gives them all credence and respect. At the end, it does come down pretty firmly on one side of an issue, which I found a little disappointing, but what are you going to do? Um, some people complain that this is like a filmed play, which is not a criticism I get because usually it just means people are mad. There aren't more locations, (laughs) (laughs) but I also feel like if you're complaining about that, that's not your real complaint. Like if everything else is working for you, you're not going to be mad about that. Um, like look, the movie buried takes place entirely in a coffin. I didn't hear people mad about that. So whatever. Um, I thought you said the movie Barry. (laughs) no buried buried. but yeah I think especially because of what the movie is it's about this family that you know a very persistent plot point is that they feel very trapped in their small apartment so I think to set it entirely almost entirely in that small apartment makes perfect sense um it went in some surprising directions as you know David we are patrons of the theater so I have seen (laughs) a lot of dramatic plays and you start to learn the beats of them but this one it did surprise me from time to time and it also tackled some subject matter for 1961 that I was kind of surprised by um there's a big abortion storyline not expecting that 1961 um there's also a big issue about like african-american assimilation versus like honoring your cultural heritage of africa again 1961 very early for that um ruby d i think was my favorite performance um i think uh louis gossett jr called it like quiet fire or something like that which is maybe a bit florid but i get what he's saying um Diana Sands plays the younger sister in the family. She really blew me away, and I looked her up, and apparently Bob Dylan said he was, quote, maybe in love with her. Um, Unfortunately, she died very young, Mm. which is sad. Um, 
I love Sidney Poitier. Got a spicy take here. So everybody buckle up for the spicy take. I think he was kind of the weak link in this movie. Um, the problem is, like, it's written as a very showy role, for sure. But from the second you see him, he's at 11. And he never is less than 11. So it got kind of exhausting because no one else in the movie was doing that. Everyone else had like peaks and valleys and they had like loud moments and quiet moments. He was just like going for it full throttle the entire time. So that was kind of a letdown, but um, very good movie. I think, you know, it does fall into some of those tropes about like issue movies, but I think like Mm. kind of the fire is there and it's, it's really good. So next up, we all somehow saw Blood Money. Yes, I, I too watched this at home. I was going to say, yes, yes. Uh, because this is the one that I was literally I'm pretty sure I was literally the last person. Well, not um, not entirely the last person. This was I really enjoyed Blood Money, but I was in such a bad mood. Still <laughs> mad at Dana Delaney. <laughs> mad it's more at, enemy. <laughs> yeah. Mad at how long it took to get out of the theater. Right. Plus the movie started late. So yeah. it was, um, you know, on edge the entire time. I finally get in the last person in, uh, and then someone I'm seated uh, up in the balcony and there's room for a wheelchair, which is fine, you know, but they, so they, the, uh, staff a volunteer or someone brings in, uh, a, a man in a wheelchair to sit next to me. And then the, the, I don't know if it was a volunteer because the person seemed very familiar with the movie and basically, explained sitting right next to me explained to this man everything that he'd missed so far in the movie oh, he came in late. so that was i was like i was so annoyed and i was like oh finally i'm here yeah to see the movie and like for the first five minutes of the movie it's just someone telling me what i've just watched yeah Ugh. um i was in a bad mood but luckily blood money was really great it's pretty fun uh yeah, yeah it's it was another it, pre-code yeah it was introduced by bruce goldstein who's the director of repertory programming at film forum in new york and he is all in on pre-code and almost every year he gives some great presentation about pre-code in general about movies in particular uh this movie was made in 1933 at film forum he programmed an entire series that was just 1933 movies and i think that was the year they were shown at 1933 prices um, oh. yeah it was, so he is like the guy for Recode and he really knows his stuff. And I was glad he gave the introduction because he mentioned that the I'm glad you got to see it. Yeah, well, <laughs> get there early, <laughs> push over some old ladies, you know? <laughs> <laughs> including uh, Danny Delaney, yeah. who is not an old lady, but I should have um, pushed her over. Yeah. So in his introduction, he mentioned that uh, the director, Rowland Brown, is one of the few guys who was a writer director at this time. Uh, you know, the screenplay had some other hands in it, but he was one of them, and he didn't direct many movies allegedly his main uh, way of living was some sort of ties to the underworld. And you can see that in this movie, which seems to at most of the time, like go through great lengths to explain bail bonding and yeah. like, the ways people can twist that around. And you can really sense that he has a background in this stuff because there's a lot of details in there. Yeah. That, I mean, I've seen a lot of pre-cut movies. This is really gets into the nitty gritty of like financial transactions in gangster land. Yeah. There's a yeah. great part where it's like him, the bail bondsman, the guy who robbed the bank yeah. and the DA like playing golf together yeah. and talking about how they're going to do yeah. <laughs> like the bail bond deal. Uh, yeah. It's awesome. Something that was interesting to me, too is like bail bonds are very much in the news right now because there's a lot of like cities and states trying to ban like right. cash bail because they say it's an unfair system and there's a line to that effect yeah. in this movie from 1933 like someone says something to the effect of like you're profiting off other people's misfortune and i was like amazed how like relevant that felt <laughs> well they do it in a great slyway too where one of the first scenes with him kind of introducing who he is is this woman brings in her son who she needs to get out oh, of yeah. bail and he's like 
you have the deed to your house, I trust. And he's like, yes, yes. He's like, just leave it at the door. <laughs> yeah. And she's like, okay, thanks. Yeah. 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 Uh, uh, le- probably less realistic is the exploding pool ball uh, sequence, yeah. which is probably the movie was most thrilling too. I yeah. mean, yeah. it's this great chase sequence and this woman is trying to get across town in a taxi before uh, the guy plays pool in the wrong way to hit the eight ball and yeah. blow up the whole place. And so you keep getting these shots of yeah. the eight ball almost getting hit, which is very exciting. I mean, it's really tightly cut too. I mean, it's really accomplished yeah. filmmaking and the taxi just keeps weaving and dodging lights. It's super she fun. She keeps upping how much yeah. she's going to pay him if he gets there yeah. on time. Yeah. It's, uh, I want to talk about what I found to be Probably maybe the most pre-code element, okay. which is third in the list of uh, alluring women, uh, Fran- <laughs> Francis D in this movie. Yeah. Uh, although I would not be her type because the pre-code element is that she's a masochist who is looking for someone <laughs> who will beat her up. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to, uh, you know, spoilers for the 1933 movie. I'm going to talk about her last scene in the movie. It's uh, pretty great. Oh, brother. It's insane. <laughs> a, woman, a harried woman comes out of an office building clutching a newspaper and she says, you won't believe which is half of me. I, I answered this ad to be a model. I barely got out of there with my life. My arm is black and blue. I think my jaw is broken. And Francis D's character, character grabs the newspaper. Give me that ad. And runs into the building. Which, like, okay. Listen. You know this is problematic. But yeah. that's not how BDSM works. Because people who do it without consent. Right. It's not going to end up the way you want. Right. But, you know, maybe in... in uh, in 1933, she didn't have a, there were a website. Yeah, or a, it was harder you know, to find, a, like, groups of like-minded kinksters. Girl, and that guy gonna kill you. There was, they no, had no Dan Savage column in that newspaper that she Maybe did. they hadn't yet figured out safe words and all that, you know? Yeah. Oh, I'm sure they had figured it out. <laughs> but I actually had an idea for her character. I saw that, and I, like, after I picked my job off the floor, <laughs> yeah. I was like... Okay, here's a theory I have, and I don't, I doubt this was like the creator's intent, but I'm like, this could just be a fun read. What if she's supposed to represent a manifestation of an audience hungry for crime movies? Mm. Yeah, I could dig that. Sure, yeah. That she like takes it to such a comical extreme because that was just the thing. Like these crime movies were like America was enamored of them and they couldn't be violent enough to satisfy these audiences. So the fact that she's like just drawn to, cause that's her deal through the whole movie. She loves violence and danger. And like, it's so over the top that I almost wondered if she wasn't like an mm-hmm. audience surrogate in that way. Um, yeah. Uh, but, uh, going back to her sexiness real quick. <laughs> so if you watched it at home, you didn't see the, after the movie, uh, what's his name? Uh, Bruce Goldstein. Bruce Goldstein showed clips from the movie that had been cut out in different markets. Mm. And there's one, I can't remember where it was, but there's a part that's just a close up of her face telling Bill Bailey, the bonds, bell bondsman, how to spell her name. Yeah. That's all that she's doing. Yeah. yeah. And they, cut that out because it was too sexy it was too sexy for certain markets uh well it is kind of unexpected like when they zoom in like that right. yeah. i was like oh okay yeah yeah also um judith anderson is in it as a vampy glamour girl which i found very interesting because her next role was mrs danvers and rebecca oh and that was kind of that kind of typecaster because really after that she kind of only played these kind of like imperious matronly roles but here she's like in these sexy gowns and is very like living for the moment it was actually her screen debut which i thought that was hmm. interesting um also when you first see francis d she's dressed like mr peanut i just need to put that out there <laughs> she's wearing like a top hat and tails and a yeah. monocle like yeah. she's pretty accurate i just saw her, i'm like oh mr peanut that's what we're doing yeah that's pretty good. um uh, also, I, this didn't, I don't know, I don't know if this came up in the intro, but according to 
Letterboxed. Lucille Ball is in the racetrack scene? Oh, I have no okay. idea. I didn't huh. know because I didn't see the intro. Yeah, uh, didn't mention the intro, uh, at least huh. that I recall. That could be one of those apocryphal things, too. Yeah. yeah. I also thought it was interesting that it was set in L.A. because there's yes. no reason it had to be. Yeah. Like there Which was is what? Oh, huh? you're saying there's no reason it had to be. There's no reason, because usually they only set movies in L.A. if it had to do with the movie industry, but it didn't. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, because I was... Because so much of it seems sort of generic, you know, sort of urbanish settings, but then there's a whole thing that specifically, like, mentions Beverly Hills, and he goes Beverly to Hills, a Brentwood, yeah. Brentwood, he goes and to a garden party in Brentwood. Somebody calls Larchmont is the other thing. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, so it's like, you would miss it, honestly, if you weren't even paying attention, but just that they chose to do that was like, yeah. I was kind of like, huh. Uh, anyway, I really dug this, but that was my last one for the night, because I had a... An event to go to. It was a Hawaiian-themed garden party in Brentwood. Uh, luau <laughs> in Brentwood. <laughs> yeah, go. no one in the 30s had heard of luau's. That was a big thing in the movie. That where they were like, me. A luau? You um, know what I was reading about today on Eater, which I mentioned earlier, right. about how uh, early, like late 1800s, early 1900s, Mexican restaurants in Los Angeles referred to themselves as Spanish restaurants because people were too racist to eat Mexican food. Uh, they wanted yeah. enchiladas and everything, but they that wanted e- to be lied to that, that explains Spanish a lot. food. Yeah, because huh. I do hear Spanish food referenced a lot in older movies. Yeah. Uh, there you go. Huh. Um, also, last thing about this is that it was a Fox movie because kind of one of the threads this year was movies from Fox. Yeah, because they were doing they kind were of a celebration of them. Bought out by Disney, and who knows what will become of them. But it was interesting because the, the logo... You don't think you're going to be able to watch Blood Money on Disney Plus? <laughs> Can't Here's hoping. Um, but I noticed that the title card, it was the regular like 20th Century Fox logo. Yeah, they mentioned this in the introduction, the, um, too. Oh, they did. Yeah. The, fanfare and everything but it said 20th century pictures yeah. it didn't actually say fox i noticed that as well I'm glad you uh, that i out. can't bruce goldstein explained all this i can't remember a single thing about it um anyway i rushed off i didn't even see like his uh afterward because i was rushing off to see uh it happened here which was shown in conjunction with kevin brownlow receiving the second annual robert osborne award which is now being given annually at the festival to somebody who contributes a great deal to film preservation. Last year is given to Martin Scorsese, who obviously through the film foundation has done so much for preserving film. Uh, quite arguably Kevin Brown has done considerably more, uh, partially because he'd been mad at it longer. He kind of started by just interviewing people who made silent films and has contributed like some of the lasting and in some cases last uh, interviews with the major stars of the silent era and ever since then has just been dedicated to preserving these films uh and this is hardly the most prestigious award he's won i mean he's already won a governor's award from the academy of motion pictures uh during the course of that ceremony they showed a clip from his speech uh he told a room of people who are all much more powerful than him that they should lose up their copyright laws so he can restore more silent films which is super awesome <laughs> um uh, his speech uh, for the Robert Osborne Award was much less fiery because, you know, he had no one to... Uh, he was the most powerful guy in that room. <laughs> um, but he also did a Q&A specifically tied to his movie It Happened Here with uh, Ben Mankiewicz, which was great. Um, so the movie was one he started making when he was 18. It took him like eight years to finish because he was making it independently using short end film stock that Stanley Cooper sent him from the set of Dr. Strangelove. This is uh, like Mad Libs. What are you saying? I know. <laughs> they also received some loose funding from Tony Richardson uh, and uh, some costumes from uh, Brownlow was a little cagey about this, but what sounded to be like a Nazi enthusiast <laughs> because uh, the movies, for those who don't know, uh, the premise is kind of an alternate history of 
uh, what life might have been like if Britain had been occupied by the Germans. Uh, and so it rightly kind of takes this departure point from uh, the retreat at Dunkirk. It assumes instead that the Germans would have kept pressing on and would have eventually occupied Great Britain. And unlike most movies that were made about uh, occupied countries at the time, it doesn't assume that everyone in Britain would automatically turn into a freedom fighter. <laughs> you know, you watch like the train or something or those other movies about occupied France. It seems like everybody that you meet is in some way involved in the underground. When in fact, most of France and most of the countries that are occupied by Germany, you know, they just need to go to work. Yeah. Uh, they want to get back to their lives. And so for a movie made in 1965 to take that and especially to assume that the British people who weren't occupied would uh, take that kind of passive approach is pretty daring and I think uh, sadly I mean you know I'm lumping myself in this too I think pretty timely to right now where most of us are engaged uh, in sort of passive quote unquote hashtag resistance but most of us are just trying to get on with our lives during the midst of you know what could end up being a it's already a very dark time in America, but could be end up being a great deal darker. Um, and that whole idea of like, what would you do under the rising of authoritarianism is I think a very pertinent theme to right now. It's a very refreshing movie to see for that reason. I've been thinking, Look, my conscience is clear. I went to the marches as you can see it on Instagram. Oh, okay. I posted well, on Instagram All right. that I was go. at some marches. My legacy yeah. is ensured. Yes. Your grandchildren will be proud. <laughs> uh, I've been, I don't know. I've been thinking a lot about the way Nazis are portrayed in movies, and I, I think uh, there's been a softening approach to them that has probably not helped the insurgent rise. Uh, you know, I think most of the time in movies they're portrayed as uh, very strict policemen, uh, but the, in a way that doesn't really acknowledge the uh, greater evils they wrought, um, which I think makes it easier then for people to start waving their flags and get relatively unquestioned by the media. Uh, but this is a movie that doesn't uh, pull its punches in terms of depicting Nazism. And the way that the main character, who's this out-of-work nurse who takes a job with... Uh, they're not explicitly called the Nazi Party. That's kind of a British equivalent under the German army, but is taken to be like a wing of the Nazi Party. Um, so she takes a job as a nurse there, figuring, you know, at least I'll be helping people. I'll be in work, you know. I don't buy into their ideology. I don't believe all the things they do, but you know, I can be contributing some good, at least make a living. And she's kind of slowly realizes throughout the course of the film that there's no separating all that, you know, there's no getting away from the cause she's ultimately helping. And some that comes out in small ways. You know, there's a scene where she's on a train in her uniform and a kid, you know, accidentally on purpose spills some cream on her. Um, and then she goes to visit some old friends. She's in an overcoat and they're like, why don't you take off your coat? And she like, takes off her coat and she has the uniform on. They like instantly give her a look like, oh my God, you're one of them. And you, this look in her eyes in return is like, I'm not one of them. This is just my work uniform. And it definitely escalates from there to a very striking ending um, that brings into full force just how inseparable her contributions are. Um, and for the fact that Kevin Brownlow made this when he was 18 is pretty shocking. It's a very assured film. When did it come out? 1960. Uh, the release year was 65, and by all accounts, everything I can find says it was 65. But when it was shown in DCP and they had a restoration title card that was like, it happened here, parentheses, 1965. And then Kevin Brownlow shouts out, 1964. <laughs> <laughs> um, so some debate mid-60s. there, apparently. Yes, mid 60s. Um, but it was shot by the guy who would go on to shoot The Empire Strikes Back and become David Cronenberg's regular cinematographer. And that guy had talent from the start. It's a great looking film. 
Oh, that reminds me that Kind Hearts and Cornets is shot by Douglas Slocum, who did the uh, original Indiana Jones trilogy. Oh, oh yeah. Nice. All right. <laughs> That's he didn't what do the fourth one because he had passed away. Uh, I'm not up next. Yeah, I, I've gotta, up next. I've gotta, I'm going to turn the heat a little bit. It's getting hot in here. All right. I tried to tell you guys. It's this uh, spicy discourse That's is what's doing <laughs> it. <laughs> it was my Sydney Poitier take. I'm sorry. No, I love you, Sydney. I can't stop thinking about Ida Lupino and Francis D. Oh, my God. So many causes. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it's about to get a lot spicier in here because I'm about to talk about a movie starring two very attractive men. Um, All right. I saw Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I I assume you've seen this at some point in your I've life. I've never seen it. You've never seen it. Well, that's a bummer <laughs> for you. Um, I had seen it before, but it had been a while, and I felt like I wanted to revisit it, and it was playing in the TCL. You know, nice big screen. Why and not? You can always get in standby. You can always get on standby. TCL, life hack. Um, they had a Q&A beforehand with Burt Bacharach, which I thought oh, was cool. kind of a surprising choice because like yeah he did the score but it was like Catherine Ross wasn't available okay um (laughs) it was kind of unfortunate because he talked about this movie for a few minutes and then just went on a 20 minute rant about the rest of his career and I was like listen like I get it but maybe this isn't the venue because it ultimately made me like miss another movie um he did in talking about this movie um mentioned so the famous song from butch cassie and the sundance kid is raindrops keep falling on my head okay um which apparently you know it went on to win the oscar for best song it was a number one hit it was huge but apparently including it in the movie was a very controversial decision because it is anachronistic it's like a very kind of modern like breezy pop song and it feels anachronistic but like in kind of a fun way but apparently this got escalated to the highest levels at fox and it's only in the movie because the head of 20th century fox went to bat for it that is the only reason is in the movie like it's insane to me they said the board voted on it like that is how high this got escalated um And, you know, like, it was kind of a big swing at the time. Like I said, it's, like, kind of an anachronistic song and kind of weird, but it is very fun. So that was kind of a fun anecdote. Um, Did he talk about the, uh, speaking of movies that played in the TCL, we'll get to later, they talk about the Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid Hello Dolly connection? No. (laughs) Which is that the, um, I guess there's a, there's a, a montage where there's some still photographs of them in old New York in mm-hmm. Butch Cash and Sundance Kid. I didn't, I haven't seen the movie, yeah. but, uh, so that's the, Del- the Hello Dolly set. And there was oh, also weird. some sort of like back and forth between like the producers of Hello Dolly didn't want to like cheap because they wanted to shoot more than just still photos mm. uh, in the New York set and the hello dolly producers were like no that's you know don't cheapen our thing uh, or whatever so uh that's interesting that did not come up um they did mention that steve mcqueen was originally attached to play the sundance kid but didn't want to be second build so he dropped out um they also considered marlon brando which is crazy (laughs) to me because this was 1969 so marlon brando as a sidekick (laughs) In 1969, like, no, unless they had invented a time machine, that that's absurd. Um, I feel like it's one of those well-known movies that everybody knows what it is, but they don't quite remember it right. Because, like, I feel like Rocky is an example of this, where everyone's like, yeah, Rocky, the boxing movie. And I'm like, guys, it's a romance movie with uh-huh. a little boxing in it. And similarly, everyone's like, yeah, the Western. And I'm like, it's a buddy comedy. Like, it's just a buddy comedy. And they, like, rob a couple banks. Like, that's Mm. really what it primarily comes through as. Um, 
I forgot that the well, Rocky fir- didn't do itself any favors with its in- diminishing return sequels. But then <laughs> right. I guess people like the Creed movies, I guess. I guess. So maybe it's rescue. Um, but yeah, I, uh, so the first scene is like sepia toned and I forgot about that. So I thought there was something wrong with the projection, but I kind of was like looking around to see if anyone else was panicking and no one else was panicking. So I just wrote it out and turns out they did that on purpose. It's fine. Um, <laughs> but it's like, <laughs> that, you know, when I said I went to Cabo Wabo and you said that was on brand. Yeah. Uh, on brand. <laughs> <laughs> I will obsess over that comment (laughs) for many hours. Um, But yeah, this movie is very funny. So if you haven't seen it and you think it's just a stuffy on Western, it's not, it's hilarious. And like the two of them have this incredible chemistry. Um, They were about 10 years apart, which I kind of always thought of them as the same age, Redford and Paul Newman. They're not Um, about 10 years apart, but they have such great chemistry. Um, I was wondering what their dynamic reminded me of. And I realized it was George Clooney and Brad Pitt in Ocean's Eleven. I Googled that. I was like, maybe this was a direct influence and there was nothing about hmm. that. But cause like Clooney and Newman, they're both the criminal masterminds, but they're very like beleaguered. They have all these like issues they're dealing with, like mm-hmm. this minutia they always have to sort through. Um, and then Redford and Pitt are both sidekicks who don't say much, chew gum a lot, and have very nice hair. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, is Redford always eating? Because that was the thing. With he wasn't always Pitt's eating, character. but he chews gum a lot, which I feel like I think Pitt does in mm-hmm. Oceans when he's not eating. Um, but yeah, it's just really great because like something else is like it doesn't really glamorize a life of crime. Like if anything, it shows how it's rife with like annoyances and letdowns. Um, like they're often in danger, but they also talk about how they never seem to come out ahead financially. They have to deal with all this petty infighting, like just kind of these logistics. Um, also the two of them like share a girlfriend, which is just so weird. Cause it's just like v- presented very matter of factly. And she like goes on the run with them and like, they share her like, <laughs> this is just what's happening. And like, even for 1969, that felt a little risque to me. I don't know. Um, but yeah, it's it's very funny, but it's also kind of poignant at the end because they keep like discussing their plans for the future, even though you know this is the end for them. Like they kind of get into a situation where you know it's kind of it's over, but they keep like discussing where they're going to go next and how they're going to go to Australia and what they should do differently then. And like so that's fairly poignant. Um, mm. So yeah, if you haven't seen it, it. It's a classic for a reason. It's not just something that people talk up for. I don't know, Scott, if you want to chime in anything about I it. I love it. <laughs> I mean, I, I, we saw it once back in college. I don't remember it too specifically, but everything you're talking about, I remember feeling that way about it. Yeah. Also, Paul Newman, he's just the sexiest man who ever lived. <laughs> like, don't at me. This is not a discussion. It's just a fact. So, yeah. Scott, you're up. Yeah. Uh, so next I saw a 1931 melodrama, which is right in my wheelhouse, called Waterloo Bridge. Uh, TCM has really been instrumental in turning me on to pre-code melodrama. I think the pre-code we've been talking about tends to get more of uh, the public's eye and definitely more people in the seats. There was almost nobody at Waterloo Bridge. Um, but I've always really loved the older melodramas they've shown, like uh, Stranger Returns or uh, Street Scene, all these movies that definitely take the liberties of the time, but don't foreground them as much as, say, a Blood Money or a Night World. Uh, there's kind of more than, as Julie mentioned, like a race to get as much violence as possible on screen. Uh, in this case, 
uh, May Clark once again shows up as a woman who traveled to from America to London to be a chorus girl, got some work for a while, fell out of work, and is now a prostitute. And the movie makes no bones about that. It's very clear what she does for a living. Uh, one night during this movie takes place during World War One, and one night during an air raid, she meets a soldier, and he kind of takes her back to the. Uh, her apartment, not knowing what she does for a living, just that she's like, seems like a woman in distress and they kind of started a little bit of a romance, but she doesn't of course feel worthy of him and certainly doesn't want to tell him what she does for a living. And so she keeps that all from him, but he kind of keeps at her and keeps persisting uh, to further their divide. He comes from a very well-to-do family and eventually invites her out to the country. And she of course resists but it inevitably comes into contact, including uh, his sister is played by Betty Davis in one of her first screen roles. Uh, Betty Davis later reflected that she had almost nothing to do in the film and really wished she had May Clark's role. And you can see how much she would have done with it. Uh, but May Clark is extraordinary in the film. So I, I don't feel too bad uh, for Betty Davis missing out on one great role. Yeah, things, Sorry, things Betty. worked out okay. Yeah, things worked yeah. out okay. Um, but the film is so patient and it's only like as most pre-codes are most only about 80 minutes long but it's so patient the way it kind of draws out the story there's this great early scene where after may clark has kind of gotten rid of the soldier she's like you know well it's getting late and he's like yeah well i'll get it going home and then yeah, there's a long scene of her just getting ready to go back out and walking the street of her putting on a lipstick, putting on her hat, putting on the kind of fake fur she has and just like the sadness in her eyes of everything she has to confront for the next, next few hours and realizing that uh, what she's been the kind of easy repertoire she's been engaged in is the feeling that she's trying to uh, create in so many men, but has so is so far disconnected from her everyday life and the fact that may clark can convey all that just by looking in the mirror is really striking and the fact that director james whale gave her the space to do so uh in the film really speaks to his immense talents uh, yeah it's, i think it's an extraordinary film it's one of the best films i saw at the festival for sure and they remade it in 1940 with vivian lee but because the code was in effect right i haven't seen that but apparently they had to really soft pedal the whole prostitution mm-hmm. angle didn't they make her like a chorus girl yeah. or something kind of like that yeah, something yeah. like that. I got it on the details, but certainly not as apparently, uh, even though the code was only very loosely enforced at the time, they did say that no scenes could be made of, uh, what do you say, propositioning a prostitute, procuring, soliciting, soliciting prostitute. Uh, there's still a scene of someone soliciting <laughs> Clark. <laughs> what are you going to do? Yeah. Julie. Oh, it's me You're again. Up. Okay. Um, so again, full disclosure, saw this at home because Bert Backrack yap for too long. And I was like, okay, I could run. That son of a bitch. Uh, classic <laughs> Bert. Delaney. They're in, in a pod. They're in cahoots. Yeah. Um, I was like, listen, I could Take run half a mile rocks. uphill to probably get turned away after having eaten nothing but a hot dog I bought from a street <laughs> vendor. But you know what? I'm going to go home. So um, the next movie I watched well, at home. At least you got a hot dog from the street. But I got a hot dog. At the Chinese concession stand. Yeah. It's amateur, not recommended. No way to live. It was terrible. <laughs> yeah. Just get them off the street. Um, yeah, so I saw Indiscreet, which is a 1958 movie directed by Stanley Donnan and starring Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman. All of this would seem like a recipe for success. Sadly, in my eyes, it was not. Oh, you're Just, so wrong. <laughs> shut your mouth. <laughs> Hold your comments till the end. So... This was kind of the bummer of the festival for me. Um, I just felt like it had maybe enough premise for a sitcom episode, but it was stretched way too thin to be in hour 40. Um, the plot is Ingrid Bergman starts dating Cary Grant and thinks he's married, but he isn't. 
that's it. That's the plot. Um, they do put off that revelation for like a hilariously long time. That's the whole plot. It's basically but like, as I recall, the, the Cary Grant doesn't like come out with that information until like an hour into the movie. Or yeah. Something. yeah. <laughs> she's, she's talking about it being stretched. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like, so I'm like, I, but I'm saying like the, that tension isn't even introduced early on yeah. in the movie. So I'm saying I, this perfectly in my mind would fit as an episode of sex in the city. Like this type of conflict, like, oh, like, you know, Carrie starts dating a man and thinks he's married, but like it would fit there. This is too long. Um, It felt like a play from the early 20s, like the ones you always read about that like is where like stars got their start. It's like these stuffy comedies of manners about rich people. And those can be good, like the importance of being earnest. But this one was it because it wasn't really that funny but it also wasn't really consequential enough to be dramatic um it was in fact based on a play um but one that did not run for very long um i haven't seen everything ingrid bergman ever did so i don't want to make a sweeping statement here but it seemed like she was struggling with the comedy because i feel like a lot of the things she said were maybe not inherently funny but like there was maybe latent humor that could have been found in the delivery that she just wasn't finding. Um, apparently Marilyn Monroe and Jane Mansfield were both considered for the role. And I think they could have found that comedy in the delivery. Um, they were also about a decade younger than Ingrid Bergman, which I think is interesting because it is, it was kind of nice to see a drama about like people in their forties falling in love because I feel like even now we have kind of, People call it like the geriatric like cinema thing of like your best exotic marigold hotels and all Mm -hmm. that. And then you, of course, have attract people in their 20s. But like kind of the middle, you maybe don't have as much. Um, So that kind of stood out. But yeah, it just didn't really. Do you think if Burt Backrack had shut his fucking mouth (laughs) and you'd gotten to the theater to see it with a TCM crowd, you might have liked it more? I mean, I can never know for sure. But I, I was struggling because it's like it wasn't even capturing my attention at home like I was kind of getting more distracted and stuff and like if it couldn't grab me there it might have grabbed me a little more in the theater Mm -hmm. this is what I will say for it though Cary Grant at one point does a completely insane jig I was gonna say if nothing else oh yeah you have to give it up for the jig I give it up for the jig (laughs) because it's very unexpected because they're at a very stuffy like formal banquet and they're doing like a very formal waltz and then he just lets loose and lets loose he does it almost felt to me like he felt so pent up by the rest of the movie that like at some point Stanley and I was like fine you can dance (laughs) and Cary Grant was like I'm dancing because he was what like in his 50s or something he must have been yeah he was not a spring chicken and he just i've never seen anyone dance like that it is bizarre did did you want to mount a counter argument Uh, not much i mean i saw it several years ago admittedly i might have been influenced by the setting i saw it in a, a paris cinema club um but Paris, by the way, any night of the week, you can go watch old American movies. It's great. Uh, and one of them I saw was Indiscreet. Uh, so that I might have been influenced by that. It's a very continental movie. Cary Grant travels back and forth from London to Paris. It's one of those, uh, what, the late 50s or the 60s? I can't remember. 58. 58. 58. Uh, late 50s movies that's very enamored of continental travel. Uh, I don't know. I, I just found the vibe very engaging. I thought it was be- Cary Grant. One of Cary Grant's better straight romantic roles. Um, and I, I thought Ingrid Bergman was good too. I don't know. Okay. You're Apparently, just, in the stage play, it was Charles Boyer. 
if that. Uh, oh, I mean, nobody's but to me, nobody's better than Cary Grant. So well, no, no, no. it really Listen, doesn't matter. I love me some Cary Grant, yeah. but in terms of kind of like a continental right. seducer, sure. Yeah, have I don't you know. seen Love Affair? I have not Hello. seen Love Affair. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, maybe not. You know, you can probably skip it, but maybe look up the jig on YouTube. <laughs> so Scott, you did something I've never done at TCM this before. Nor had I. You went to a midnight movie. I did. I was reflecting on this because somebody was like, Oh, well, you know, clearly you haven't really done TCM Fest before. And I was like, well, it is nice to do something new every year. And I think subconsciously I try to shake up my festival somewhat. So this year I shook it up by staying up very, very late and getting very, very little sleep uh, in order to see the 1970 film The Student Nurses, which is, in fact, a sexy nurse movie produced by Roger Corman, uh, but is also rightly hailed for its feminist bona fides is written, directed by a woman, uh, Stephanie Rothman, I want to say. Um, who was there for a Q&A. Uh, she didn't have much to say. Uh, just kind of went over what I have read to be kind of the standard talking points of the film, which is that, as with most things, Roger Carman was like, you can make any movie you want as long as there's X number of boobs and uh, you know, it it's not too number? long. <laughs> <laughs> Always an odd number for some reason. Hey, he liked a challenge. Yeah. Um, he also One of his requirements, which they didn't live up to, was that all the nurses had to be dumb, uh, which the movie uh, thankfully does not steer into all the nurses are actually quite smart. They're not only very good at their jobs, but are actually well read. You know, at one point, one of the nurses is just reading a book in public and, you know, some bro is like, what are you reading, lady? And she gives a very like detailed dissertation of the uh, novel she's reading, which is super fun. Uh but it was also a way for Stephanie Rothman. Are you looking yes, up? Yes, Stephanie Rothman. <laughs> um, I was waiting for my entree to to pack in. Confirm. Apparently, every conceivable issue of the time, which in 1970 the times were filled with issues. So you know, within less than 90 minutes, let's see. I made a little list here. You've got. Uh, rape, birth control, abortion, minority rights, guerrilla revolutionary, <laughs> drugs, Vietnam, homosexuality, police brutality, the sexual revolution, workplace equality. How uh, long is this movie? 89 minutes. Okay. Um, because there's four nurses and each of them, you know, they have their own nurse adventures. Uh, and so they end up being able to address a lot of topics in that time. And I was, I'd recently rewatched uh, Shampoo and was thinking about the fact that I like almost any movie set in uh, late 60s, early 70s LA, which this is, uh, which goes a long way for me. And just the fact that it's so keyed into being a portrait of its time and for all that was going on in New Hollywood and all that was great about this revolution, there weren't that many films being made about women. And so for a film to center around women, to center around smart women and center around admittedly beautiful women, uh, to so full thoroughly tackle the issues this time. And I think it comes to a perfect head at the end where the women are marching into their graduation and very clearly going off to very different futures in their field. Uh, and one of the characters has some line that's like, that's progress, baby. And there's something kind of feminist triumphant about it that I, yeah. I really dug. Uh, in addition to which, there's two exceptional drug trip out scenes, uh, which is two. Oh, and they crammed a lot into this. I- minutes. <laughs> There's a lot going on, uh, which, for, you know, from where I'm sitting, give Zabriskie point a run for its money. And that that is high praise for coming from me. Uh, so, yeah, I really dug the student nurses. I wanted to see it, but it would have just been an expensive nap for yeah. me. So. It was for most of the people in the theater. Uh, very rowdy crowd at the start, uh, less so 15 minutes in. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, and then you guys both got up early to see yeah. something Yeah, we did. Morning. Quick turnaround. So we saw the 
exceptionally titled Merrily We Go to Hell. Yeah. Which also sums up the experience of marching off to see a movie at 9 a.m. after you've gotten four hours of sleep. Yes. <laughs> um, the title is actually some, it was based on a novel with a very boring title or a story. It was called I, Jerry, Take Thee, Joan. Very boring. Um, but <laughs> I the, swear to God, that was yes, the story's title. <laughs> but the title is, so it stars Frederick March, and this is something right. he used to say as a drinking toast, which he gets to say in the movie as a drinking toast. But I guess he just said it, and they're like, there's a title. Um, this is the second year in a row we saw a 30s movie where Frederick March plays a drunk. Yeah. He's very good at it. Um, which was the one last year? A Star is Born. Oh. Um, it was directed by Dorothy Arzner, one of the few female directors of that era. Um, I noticed that for 1932, the camera was very fluid. Yeah. A lot of zooms and dollies mm-hmm. going on. Well, um, not zooms, but push-ins. Well, true. Um, as with all Paramount movies from 1932, they did manage to find a bit part for Cary Grant. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Which did get, uh, even though you don't see his face in his first scene, you hear enough of his voice for the audience to applaud. Don't worry, David. Yes, they, People they knew applauded. Cary Grant was on screen. They applauded. <laughs> Um, yeah, so it, at first it seems like a tragedy about an innocent woman who marries a drunk, but then for a bit in the middle there, she catches him cheating, but this is a pre-code movie. So she says, you know what? Let's have an open marriage, which I cannot necessarily say I was expecting. No. Um, and then she, you know, goes and messes around with Cary Grant, which like, is that even cheating? I don't know. I, that just seems like a totally normal thing to do. But then it gets dramatic again. Well, I, I think the title is, in addition to being very catchy title, it's very fitting because right. it's about these people who they're sin or vice as it were centered around partying and drinking and seemingly having a good time while they're also in the process ruining their lives and so they are indeed merely going to hell and for as much as you know there's he's definitely uh the worst of the two he's instigating many of their problems because he won't stop drinking and won't stop uh slacking on his commitments in their marriage and he just doesn't show up places um he doesn't finish work you know he's in many ways just kind of a bad husband and so there comes times kind of before their ultimate confrontation where she kind of tells him off or shows she him out of room sylvia sydney by the way yes oh. uh who's great as always um so she kind of like puts him in his place from time to time and the audience you know cheered and everything because you know yay women and all that but i think that kind of overlooks just how difficult many of her decisions were and overlooks the dramatic conflict of the film and you know the fact that she proposes and insists upon an open marriage i i don't think the film like posits that as some like saucy victory which the audience seemed to right. take it to be it's yeah. like a very cutting emotional turn that i thought was wonderfully explored and there's a lot of dramatic tension wrought from the film that the TCM audience just seemed intent on forcing into a kind of a pre-code hole. Yeah, that was something that, you know, I think the best pre-codes, it's not just that they have this salacious content, they have moral ambiguity, they have gray areas, and sometimes they have lessons in forgiveness. And, but yeah, I was going to say, like, it's funny because these TCM audiences, if they're not men who are cornering me in conversations, <laughs> they are, you know, they're storming the gates of these pre-code movies, can't get enough, trampling each other to get into them, but then they are just so contemptuous of these characters' life choices. Yeah audibly contemptuous like (laughs) booing and hissing and like so mad like when you when you know frederick march was his character was first unfaithful you would think he engineered a genocide (laughs) for how people reacted and it's like 
show some respect for human frailty for one. <laughs> and it's just like, you know, bask in this ambiguity. Like these are complicated people making hard choices. Yeah. And that's what I think is really, this was my favorite film, the festival. And that's what I really think is its main strength is just how emotionally complex it gets and that it doesn't use its, uh, the freedom of its content to just be a saucy adventure. It's really more like a play right up to the end. I mean, I think there's room to disagree with the things the characters do at every turn. And that's really engaging to experience. And, oh yeah, there was something else I was going to say, which is that when this was, we saw it as part of the TBA slot, which is slots that get filled by films that were so popular during their initial run, they feel they can warrant a second audience. So I had heard from people who saw it a couple of days before that like the first half isn't that engaging, but the second half is really wild. And yeah, the second half is pretty wild, but I found the first half totally engaging. And I yeah, think it's just sure. that whole thing of like, there wasn't enough pre-codeness of it all, right. but yeah. the characters are so rich and Frederick Barch, I mean, we mentioned uh star is born. This does feel like a run up to a star is born in many ways because it's engaging in that similar kind of he definitely feels inadequate next to sylvia sydney for many reasons sylvia sydney yeah. being a very sexy woman but she's also her character's from a higher class she's an he heiress is. basically yeah and he's a newspaper man yeah. um so that those feelings of inadequacy frederick march plays so well and also the repression of it all you can see that also in dr and mr hyde i mean i always forget how great he is and he's, right? he's so, so do yeah, I. Right. and then i see a movie with him and i'm like oh are we are we all sleeping on frederick yeah. march here no, he's awesome i never forget how great he is <laughs> well good <laughs> for you but there's also a part where he's like really excited about something and a little drunk so he's like there's three of us one more is a quartet who's a baritone yeah. and he spends like three minutes searching this whole bar for baritone and then he finds one and they just instantly all break out in the same song yeah. it is so great um also his two best friends are a man and a woman who are not married but who are like platonic friends which i feel like you don't see that much mm-hmm. like ever but especially in the 30s yeah so i was like cool. is this an elaborate coded way of his male friend being gay because they like you never explicitly mm. hear that friend's like anything about that friend's romantic life and he can tap dance and he can tap dance. Like it was just like an interesting dynamic, but yeah, really cool. The film was shown in new restoration. So hopefully a Blu-ray release is soon to follow. Yes. And we can all merrily go to hell once it comes out. (laughs) Speaking of maybe speaking of, uh, favorite films of the festival, the one that snuck up on me is hello Dolly because I did not, uh, I, I'd never seen it. And uh, I didn't really know that it had a, as bad a reputation as it does. I kind of learned movie? that. Yeah, like, I wasn't aware. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it was considered a failure at the time, um, and uh, not that this is actually a barometer of actual quality, but it's like in the forties on Rotten Tomatoes or whatever. It's not a very well thought of film. Barbara Streisand is apparently not still feels to this day that she was too young for the role. Cause the role is written for someone older than she is. Yeah. I mean, we've seen uh, the stage show and that's always been like my, my main question since we saw it. It's like, she seems a little young. Yeah. But I guess you could be, I mean, she's supposed to be a widow. You can be a widow. Sure. You can be a young. I, I guess part of it is uh, like, it didn't see, it didn't stand out to me. I guess part of it is like the social justice angle of like, Oh, an older actress could have gotten this awesome part. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Um, but it's directed by Gene Kelly and it's two hours and 26 minutes. And every one of them is a, every one of those minutes is a total blast. The, uh, um, the costumes alone, the sets alone, it's a huge, it's an, it's an enormous production. You can't even, it's weird to think now in these that so few movies are made, even the big expensive movies, the money goes into other things now, especially you know, right. visual effects and stuff like that. The idea of this just enormous immersive set. Right. And 
every there are scenes with thousands of extras and they're all in <laughs> costumes and it's it's so overwhelming and so beautiful and the costumes i coveted every single costume every man in the movie wore the stage um, production was like that too i mean it wasn't thousands of extras but every single costume was like unreal i mean that's the only reason i didn't want to see this at the festivals because we saw the show literally two months ago and i was like i want to spread out the hello dolly love here but right yeah, yeah. I'll, 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 i like all the songs um and uh uh, I, I mean, it, 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 I don't need to tell you what it's. Obviously, you guys know what the story is. It's not important. Uh, yeah, Barbara I mean, Streisand sort of engineers a bunch of people from a small town in New York to go spend a fun day in New York City. But she's trying to like she's a matchmaker. She's a matchmaker, yeah. and she's trying to make her own match as well. Uh, and it just gets more frothy and fun as it goes on. Yeah, like it doesn't like turn and suddenly take itself super seriously. <laughs> it's yeah. like just fun. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, that's exa- it's 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 meant to be fun. Um, apparently, um, Walter Matthau and Barbara Streisand didn't get along in the making of the movie. Which is which is too bad because I, I he think he's great in the movie and I, I don't think I've ever seen Walter Matthau in a musical before and so him does he sing or does oh, he yes. like <laughs> sing he talk? Uh, I would say he sings. Yeah. Okay, he only has like two numbers, yeah. and then there's the big like and medley of all the other right. numbers which, right. he, which he does. Um, uh, but you've also got uh, uh, the only maybe the only weak spot in the movie is that. Tommy Toon is a great singer and dancer and he's fun to look at cause he's over, he's like six and a half feet tall and they make, uh, jokes about the Walter Matthau calls him a seven foot tall nincompoop uh, <laughs> at one point. But as an actor, he's the weakest part yeah. of, of the movie. Who does uh, he play? Uh, he's, um, Ambrose, the one who's trying to marry, uh, Horace's niece. Yeah. Okay. Um, but even then Gene Kelly clearly thought it was fun to cast, the six foot six Tommy <laughs> Tommy tune against, and I can't remember the actress's name who plays Ermengarde, but she's like four ten. And so all their <laughs> dance scenes are hilarious together. Um, oh, that's the other thing. Yeah, I didn't talk. So much, so many great character names. Every yes. character name, even the made up ones like Ernestina Simple, are so great. You've yeah. got yeah, so Horace Vandergelder. Yeah. Uh, uh, I can't remember Ambrose's last name, but you've got Ermengard Vandervelder. You've got Cornelius Hackle. <laughs> They're all just awesome. Hackle awesome is spelled names. H-A-C-K-L, by the way. Right. Yeah, yeah. very, uh, what is that, like Dutch? Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Um, and I, just, I, I think, I, I maybe some things benefit from, it wasn't even low expectations. I just didn't really right. know what to expect. And to sit there at nine o'clock in the morning on a Sunday and have so much fun for two and a half hours, uh, really, really blew me, blew me away. Um, I'll say one, I don't know if this is a criticism of TCM fest. The movie has an intermission. It went to intermission <laughs> and I was like, Oh great. Cause I had gotten up early and had a big coffee. So I was like, awesome. I get to go. And I, so it went to intermission and they put up, they started playing the intermission like music or whatever and put up the TCM logo on the screen. And I ran to the bathroom. By the time I came back, they had already started the second half. So it couldn't have been three minutes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I'm not sure what that was doing intermission or don't, but, uh, and you know what? Maybe they made an announcement beforehand, and I was just reading Twitter. <laughs> that's usually what I do <laughs> during the uh, introductions. The moment but, of self-reflection um, is upon us. Yeah, that, uh, that was the only thing that I saw at the at the TCL. Um, I hate calling it that. It's the Chinese theater, right? Yeah. Except, is it? Because it's I think not it's called the TCL Chinese theater. But yeah. I'm saying, when you say Chinese theater, don't you think of like I don't know Star Wars premieres and like the old 
raked floor. Did you guys live here yet? Yeah, yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. I couldn't remember. Uh, saw Spartacus there the first year yeah. of TCM Fest. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, cool. Kirk um, Douglas was there. Yeah, that's fun. Uh, so, yeah. Um, yeah, it was a, a ton of fun. I forget what's next, uh, but that was my second DCP. I think I said that. And uh, who's next? We're next with uh, Cold Turkey, the one and only film directed by Norman Lear a few years Who before. Who didn't show up. Yeah. He was scheduled to, but didn't. One of many no-shows this year, by the way. I yeah. felt really Gina bad for DCM. Uh, no Shirley show? McLean. Lily Tomlin. Oh, I didn't know about Shirley McLean not showing up. Yeah, um, I yeah. swear I was just thinking about somebody else. Anyway, there are a lot of no-shows, and I feel really bad for the festival, because that's like the main way they get people to attend. But alas, uh, we still saw a great movie. Uh, it's super funny. It's about this small town. It's about a tobacco company that puts out a $25 million prize for a town that is able to quit smoking for 30 days on the assumption that no town will be able to do it. Cause it has to be every single person in the town. Yeah. So they figure no town will be able to commit. And if they somehow get them to commit, they'll never be able to go through with it. Uh, but wouldn't you know it, a town led by a preacher played by Dick Van Dyke can do such a thing. Uh, and I mean, it's top to bottom hilarious and just keeps getting weirder and funnier as Sorry, it goes how along. How do they know that people didn't smoke? Well, <laughs> they address that. So the, the guy who engineers the scheme is played by Bob Newhart, who is great in it. And no surprise there. So he comes up with this idea and, um, the head of the tobacco company, it's the last role of Edward Everett Horton, who was yeah. like in all these thirties and forties movies. He doesn't actually say anything. He's just like, but a, it reminds you how great of a facial actor he is. True. <laughs> what do I know him from? Cause I know that name. Uh, Anything. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Have you seen Trouble in Paradise? Have no. you seen... Holiday. Um, is he in Ruggles or Red Gap? Probably. I know. He's just, just in, like, like every, every movie okay. from the 30s. Every parent you would know him. You would okay. know him. But he's an arsenic and old lace. Sure. There you go. Um, but yeah, so that does come up. So he comes up with this idea and he's like, no one can do it. And then this town is like, we're going to do it. And then they're like, no one will finish it. And then they ask him, they're like, how do you know people aren't smoking? Um, and he's like, uh, cause he clearly didn't think of that. So then they do address that at a later time. They come up with a, a way to monitor the situation. But, um, I mean, the main way they do is just to root out all the cigarettes in the town and not allow yeah. any more in. But I'm saying that couldn't you drive to another town for dinner and have a cigarette with dinner? Well, it's a very small town. People don't go very far. <laughs> yeah. It also seems like the town isn't near anything else. Yeah, it okay. seems they, pretty cut off. They say it's like, am I maybe missing the point here? By maybe. Just, <laughs> this. It has a population of like 4,000 yeah. and they make it pretty clear that like it was kind of a center of industry around world war two or so and has kind of fallen off because this yeah. movie came out in 1971. So that's why they want to win the money is because they're so like economically depressed is that they want to like revive it. So, yeah, I would say that it takes longer than I thought to get to the 30 days where they're not smoking. Yeah, I could see that. Um, so I thought pacing wise, that was a little weird. But once that starts, they are off to the races. Yeah, I mean, the first kind of 15 days that they go over are mostly just people being pissed off at everything. <laughs> and the number of things they find to get people to be pissed off about are hilarious. Like, yeah, there's one like kicking her groceries. But then there's a guy who just throws himself down a bowling lane at the pins. Yeah. <laughs> what it actually reminded me of and this maybe isn't a very highfalutin reference, but do you know how in the first Kingsman movie, I think it's Kingsman, it's like that sound that makes everybody go insane yeah. and try to kill each other? Yeah. That's oh, right. what I thought of because you just have these wide shots of everybody doing a different insane thing yeah. as they cope with like nicotine withdrawal. Um, and Sorry, I just realized what I know Edward, Edward okay. from. What is yeah, it? Here comes Mr. Jordan. Sure. sure. Um, 
I overheard as we were coming out, I overheard somebody say it reminded them of the Simpsons. And I don't know if that was a praise or criticism, but I definitely can see that because it's this whole thing of like the whole town banding together to do this wacky thing. Um, it also reminded me a little later on of Ace in the Hole, weirdly, because yeah. the town becomes a media circus and becomes kind of a center of industry because of like tourism and all these people like selling T-shirts with Dick Van Dyke's face on it and like that whole thing. Um, it was shot in 1969, but not released till 1971 because they thought it would be a flop. It actually did pretty well, I guess. Um, there's a lot of like Norman Lear actors in it. Um, you, yeah, Dick Van Dyke, Bob Newhart. Um, also, there's a talking doll at one point that says, like, cigarettes kill you or yeah. something. That's the voice of Maureen McCormick, who is Marsha Brady. Oh, I didn't know Which is super random. Um, also, even just the extras in this town have, like, yeah, these incredible faces. Exceptionally well cast. Like, yeah, people who don't even say anything just have these amazing faces. There's a small band of citizens that are the chief policers of the border to make sure no cigarettes come in. And it's kind of this, like, libertarian group who like worships the idea of no government. And the whole reason they won't sign the pledge at the start is so is because they, none of none of them smoke, but they don't like the idea of t- someone telling them what to do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, until they find out that they can become the police of the border. And then they're like, that's the kind of authoritarianism we can get behind. Uh, and it's led by this one guy who's a total doofus. And then his main, uh, main bean is bonnet is this old woman who keeps wanting to take his gun and shoot people. Shoot that she, commies. That she suspects of being commies. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then the other thing is almost every time you see that character, he has little pieces of a toilet paper <laughs> on his face from shaving cuts and they, no one ever says anything no. about it. It just further proves like how much of an idiot he is. Um, it was also the first movie scored by Randy Newman. Yeah. So he has a song. Um, the one major issue I would say I have with it is there's kind of a plot thread toward the end where, you know, cause Dick Van Dyke's character is a reverend. So people start to be like, have we lost our soul? Have we sold out by becoming this media circus and having things take over? Which is valid, and they like they treat that very seriously. The problem is, the movie takes great pains to show you that everyone in this town was terrible from the <laughs> beginning. Like it is abundantly clear that these are all just like bad people. Even Dick Van Dyke, he's yeah. like they show him with his wife, and he's like completely Super ignoring everything. Like everyone in this town is terrible. So to have all these like genuine concerns of like, are we selling out? It's like. You no. I, I think that there's, they kind of twist that into a joke, though, because that's his big concern until he gets on the cover of Time magazine, and True. then he's like, "Well, this has all been worth it." True. All right. Yeah. I I was listening, but I just want to point out Edward Everett Horton was also <laughs> the dumb lawyer from The Gay Divorcee. Um, oh yeah, yeah. The guy who comes up with the dumb scheme. Uh, yeah. yeah, he was in yeah. a lot of those. Uh, Friend Ginger movies. Yeah. Yep. I knew that name yeah. anyway. Yeah. Uh, all right. Next up, my uh, third and final DCP uh, and the second of only two color films that I saw at this year's uh, TCM Classic Film Festival. Um, Don Siegel's The Killers from 1964. I had seen the Seod Mac Killers from 1946, I guess, uh, but I'd never seen this one before. Uh, it's, um, uh, like I said, it's color. It was apparently initially went into production as a made for TV movie, but, uh, with the level of violence in the movie, um, which I think by today's standards isn't actually, doesn't seem all that sure, violent for TV in 1964. Yeah. They were like, they, they released it as a, uh, finished it and released it as a, as a feature it was the last film of Ronald Reagan. 
and the only time he played a villain, uh, which apparently was something that he was not happy about. Uh, he regretted taking the role. Um, uh, Angie Dickinson introduced the movie and he, she, uh, uh, said she was, she's a Democrat, not a fan of Ronald Reagan as a politician, but that he was a very nice man and that he felt terrible about having to slap her on screen. <laughs> she didn't say if Lee Marvin felt terrible about having to slap her <laughs> because I was surprised when she got slapped a second time in the movie because she only talked about the one oh. in the intro. Um, so maybe well, she would was... expect that from Lee Marvin, I guess. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it's got a, an amazing cast. So, um, Lee Marvin and Clue Gallagher, uh, Clue Gulliger, I always say his name wrong, um, play uh, hitmen who show up to kill John Cassavetes at the very beginning. Um, and he, John Cassavetes just stands there and takes it in this so haunts Lee Marvin that he's like, we're going to get to the bottom of why, who wanted this guy dead and why. And, you know, because this is such an odd situation, there's something going on here. And so the movie is almost like a Citizen Kane style of these these two hitmen go on, go around, uh, only they're not like friendly newspaper interviews. They're roughing people up <laughs> and getting, uh, uh, getting, and so you get chunks of the backstory leading up to the murder, uh, from the different people that they, yeah, rough up. They, they, uh, they smack around, a, a mechanic. I can't really play him. They shove Norman fell in a, one of those, uh, one of those like old timey gym steam things where just your head comes out oh, the top yeah. <laughs> and they did <laughs> turns the steam all the way up and then they, they, uh, ask him and then you get some, uh, back background from, from them. Um, and yeah, it's just, uh, of, of Don Siegel. I feel like Don Siegel, uh, made, you know, he made invasion of the body snatchers, which uh, is a very, uh, movie that I love and feels very, um, uh, un, encumbered by what you expect of the the time of the the sort of standards of movie making of the time and 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 this one is the the same way this movie feels even though like i said it's not as dangerous or not as dangerous not as violent as they maybe thought it was the movie feels dangerous it feels like you don't know what could happen because don siegel is not necessarily playing by the rules not just in the fact that the story is uh you know jumps around and has some twists and surprises but just the way that the action is is shot in the way it seems to be just sort of and the car racing that's the other thing is john cassavetti's character plays a uh a car racer so there's a lot of car race scenes in the early part and even in that stuff it just it feels like it just happens to be caught by the camera at the angle that he could get it and it just sort of feels very uh very vibrant um uh, it was funny. I ran into front of the show, Wayne Fetterman before the movie. And he was like, have you seen this before? And I said, I hadn't. He said, eh, it's just okay. And I, I want to, I want to tell Wayne, I disagree. I thought this movie was super cool. Um, Angie Dickinson's a badass. Even today, she's like 87 years old. She's, um, still very, uh, uh lively and alert and she did not want to talk about herself or the killers very much <laughs> Mankiewicz had to sort of keep bringing her back to it she just like wanted to talk about movies like new movies she couldn't stop talking about how much she loved the mule <laughs> so, like she had been making like talked about the mule that's awesome for a while and like Ben Mankiewicz was like making fun of like Clint Eastwood casting himself in like threesomes in the movie right. and Angel Dickinson thinking that would look like looked fun and it, looked cool. <laughs> like, uh, it was that was when I didn't I, I stopped looking at Twitter when I realized Angie Dickinson was going to be a lot of fun um, and she was asking like she asked Ben Winkowitz if TCM the channel had ever shown um, 
dressed to kill, which I don't think they ever have because I don't mm. know if they show. They show like nudity. They show R-rated nudity, nude stuff. I on, I mean, they show on movies uncut. I don't know if they yeah, happen that, that to was, program movies with nudity. That was her question: is whether or not uh, it had it had run. Um, did it come up how she was previously married to other TCM guest Bert Bacharach? Because that was something I learned on the spot. No, that did not did not come up. The t- when they talked about. The killer specifically, they talked a lot about Ronald Reagan because it was just, uh, well, Kennedy was assassinated while they were making the movie. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, so that's um, obviously tied up in that memory. Uh, anyway, she had nice things about to say about Ronald Reagan. I guess, uh, you know, takes all kinds. Whatever. Have you seen the 46 version of The Killers? Yeah, I said that earlier. You weren't that listening. Wasn't but, Does uh, it... That's did, okay. <laughs> does it deviate a lot or is it kind of that they stick to the well, same it, it template? Seemed, the, what's or? interesting is it seems like the same setup of somebody going back and learning about the guy's life. But in the 46 one, it's an insurance investigator, which yeah. is much less compelling. Yeah, the, right. you know, that, that's the main difference is yeah. that the killers of the title in the first one right. like are in the prologue, essentially. And that's it. That's yeah. it. Whereas mm-hmm. here, uh, you get, and yeah, Clue Gallagher is, sorry, Gulliger. I always say his name wrong. <laughs> is so great as that, like... Uh, I mean, neither one of them are good guys, but Clue Gallagher is Gulliger is the um, the anarchist of the two of them who just does right not on. give a fuck about anything. He wears Lee darts. Marvin is not. Uh, no, Lee Marvin is the gruff one, of course, right? Uh, and the taciturn one, but Clue Gallagher is the one who's like kind of having fun. I think okay. beating people up, but also you feel like he could easily just get distracted by a hot dog stand at any point. Like he, he doesn't really care, but he's kind of just having fun with whatever he's sure. It's sure. a badass performance. Nice. Um, and, uh, yeah. So am I, um, ne- Oh, so Scott, you and I yeah. are next for tied for maybe my favorite film of the festival. I think watch out is, um, uh, what's, what's the director's name? Oh, I don't know. Some asshole. But it's the same guy who made uh, Flesh and the Devil. Oh, I don't remember his which name. Also is it Fred Niblo? Uh, it's not. Okay. It is not. I would remember that. We'll find out. Uh, uh, my it's o- called The Woman of Affairs. Yeah. It's the only silent I saw this year, and it had uh, live accompaniment, which is always... By a full orchestra. I am a sucker Clarence for. Brown yes. directed right. it. Yes, and so it's uh, John Gilbert and Greta, Greta Garbo, Garbo, which yeah. is the same team there as flesh and the devil, which is a movie that I think is truly great. Um, yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't think this movie is as flesh and the devil. No, no, that's okay. I, I would not say that, but I, um, uh, what, what do you, I just talked about the killers for like half an hour. What yeah. do you have to say? <laughs> uh, I don't have too much to say other than it's not as good as flesh and the devil, but, um, it's, it was apparently made as, uh, or after Garbo and Gilbert fell out of love in real life. So allegedly, you know, their romance off screen was affecting their performance on screen. I didn't find that to be so. They were uh, just as intense and smoldering yeah. as uh, that prior film. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, something happening off. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, uh, so, yeah, I mean, Garbo, who goes through the, this like crazy melodramatic plot, is super compelling and sexy on screen. Uh Gilbert is as roguish as ever. The film has several standout sequences, mostly involving people dying uh, that are very strikingly shot. Uh, yeah. Clarence Brown, as uh, plainly named as he is, is a very exciting visual director and really gets a lot. I mean, Garbo's another one of those people who I forget how good she can be, mainly because I haven't seen like a ton of her silent work. I mean, I've seen this and Flesh and the Devil and I guess The Goose Woman. 
Um, but this was kind of her, the peak of her career in many ways. And uh, rightly so. Um, I like drawing connections to other movies that I saw at the festival. So this is, you, you mentioned the death scene. This is one of two movies I saw, uh, in which a, um, a, a dummy is dropped off a building to uh, sure. make it look like uh, someone falling to their death. The other one was, um, all through the night, which is 13 years later. I would say this one was more convincing. Yeah. Uh, maybe cause it was, it was the shadows go a long nighttime. way. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they did the thing of him falling through like a, like an atrium or yeah. whatever, which is always, uh, a nice touch yeah. in these kind of sequences. Um, did we now, uh, I'm not sure how much of the intro you were listening to. Cause I wasn't cause the source material a little bit, they talked about how the source material is, they changed so much cause they had to for the sensors. Yeah. Um, so in the, in the movie, the guy kills himself on his wedding night because the cops find out that he's been embezzling. Right. And the fact that it's his wedding night just happens to be when they catch up with him in the book, I guess, or whatever, was it a book or a play? Whatever it's based yeah. on. Um, the reason he kills himself on his wedding night is because he has syphilis and he can't face, he hasn't told anyone and can't face consummating his marriage. Whoa. That does explain why the investment flock seems to come out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. I read that after they, they talked about how much was changed. Right. I didn't get into that specifically. I read that. I looked okay. that up afterward. Um, but yeah, it is just a, uh, a big, uh, melodrama, but this is also introduced by Kevin Brownlow. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's weird that we didn't mention, uh, I, I'm going to come around to this all making sense, uh, before roadhouse. I'm not sure if you had this experience at home, but they showed a, a, a Bill Morrison short. Oh yeah, that's right. Um, which I'm not forgetting the name of, but, um, uh, and then, Ke- and, and so Bill Morrison makes these shorts based on, you know, uh, uh, degraded, right. You know, um, uh, film, elements that are falling apart. And Kevin Brownlow in talking about women of, of affairs seemed to be almost kind of apologizing for the state of the print. It looked in great shape to me. It did look in great shape, but there were a couple parts that I thought it looked a little soft. I guess. And I actually, but I, I think maybe with the Bill Morrison thing in mind, I kind of like liked that there was something when, um, uh, uh, early in the movie when Garbo and Gilbert go, they go like, I don't know, a picnic and they're yeah. like driving out in the country and they're sort of like, not that much, uh, uh, definition between like Garbo's hair and the sun behind her and stuff. And like, uh, it maybe wasn't the sharpest print, but it looked, it, it, it gave it another level of beauty. Well, I think also that kind of helps, uh, like when there's several parts where she's just staring at the screen, expressing emotion. And I think the age of the print, just like the era in which it was made, you get a lot more kind of passion from people's faces. I, I, tweeted later is it even possible for people to smolder in the digital era <laughs> you're, you're the big digital defender david tell me can someone smolder like garbo can uh, i don't know if like garbo can but i mean <laughs> well, Ra- rachel weiss like... is out there rachel weiss is out there smoldering <laughs> all they day were slopping day. a lot of vaseline on those lenses too <laughs> that helps too but you know the flicker of the film print you know i think there's an extra degree of intensity you can get from someone just um, staring into the lens. Uh, another thing I want to point out a great, there's a great regatta scene. I like a regatta. Sure. Um, uh, <laughs> I love a regatta. Uh, it's going to be my uh, autobiography. <laughs> um, 
Uh, and uh, the other thing I'll, I'll mention is that at the end of the, or not the end, during the movie, like I said, live orchestra, there were a couple times, it's a silent movie, there were a couple times where there were things I missed because I just would start watching the orchestra. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I do have a tendency to do that. It uh, didn't help that we were in like the very last row on the balcony and looking down, so there's a lot of light pouring up on the screen, oh, which true, is yeah. a little unfortunate, but what are you going to do? Yeah. Yeah, it didn't bother that. That didn't bother me, but I did. I guess uh, I'm saying like it's easy to look down at them. Yeah, you can the see much more powerful light source. Yeah, you can see who's like. Oh, I guess there's no. I guess there's no French horn for a little bit because this guy is. <laughs> uh, this guy's taking a little break there. <laughs> uh, I mentioned the French horn because the French horn player yeah. was the great great grandson of John Gilbert. I believe that there were two greats. Two greats. Oh, crazy! Yeah, yeah. isn't that wild? Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's the last thing I saw. Yeah. I know you guys saw something I tried else. to see this yeah. movie. I was turned away. That's right. It was the like by far the busiest crowd I've ever seen at TCM Fest. Yeah. It's very rare that as a pass holder you get shoved into the lower or very upper right sections like from the board go. There was no chance to get a decent seat. Really. <laughs> yeah. And I felt so bad because I saw a guy in the standby line just ripping into the staff after. And I was like, they don't. They didn't yeah. design this. Yeah. They've been nothing but nice. Yeah, don't do that. Yeah, don't it do was. That. I almost wanted to like start a fight with him, but I'm like, that wouldn't. That would just escalate. Don't this. ever. Don't ever take it out on volunteers. Uh, yeah. Even at Comic Con, where they're, it's probably their fault. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or at TCM Fest, where it's their fault for apparently not letting you in in order for the blood money. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that because I I, I forgot, forgot about that. I also saw some volunteers getting dressed down, but by festival staff oh. because I guess blood money they let some people out of order because I was like 180 something and when the like and so when the woman who worked there saw the numbers of me and the people in front of me she was like wait what because she had just seen like yeah. some like 190s and early 200s uh, in earlier We're, we haven't talked about the cue card thing you get a cue card then you can go hold your place in line for 30 hold, minutes yeah and then you can you can come back and then they're supposed to let you in in the order of your cue card and I guess TCM uh, Fest people are very bad at lining up in order <laughs> they do not understand the cue card system at all yeah the, the killers was uh, very well attended I think be, because sure. Dickinson was going to be there and that was another thing where it was like the space like when the half an hour was up the space between like the person who's 120 and the person who was 170 was like six feet yeah, yeah. so I, I showed up with like an early 130 card and and the woman was like welcome to the area where 50 people <laughs> <laughs> stay in a few minutes. <laughs> All right, yeah, sorry. They do uh, what they can. But yeah, I, I felt bad for this for this volunteer, especially because like, you know, I've mentioned that I do the standby line. The standby line has a has a particular air of despair to it. <laughs> no one in the standby line has hope. <laughs> Very few of us have money. <laughs> it's just this like, oh, I, there's word from the front lines that like you just feel so disconnected. <laughs> so like the other thing that happens is people turn into conspiracy theorists. So they all start going, well, the reason it's it's because everyone's saving seats. It's because everyone's saving seats. Half the seats in there are empty. It's just people saving seats for their friends. And like the staff had to be like, no, sir, we've gone through and checked every single one yeah, and like explaining I, it. As somebody who has tried to save seats for you and had to give yeah. them up, I promise that they have to give them up eventually. Yeah. yeah. So it just, things get ugly out there, but yeah. Um, anyway, but you did come back for the Jolly Sisters, which is one of several years we've ended on a strange musical. A strange color nitrate 1940s musical at the Egyptian. Yeah, they're not always, but like we've also seen The Bandwagon and Kiss Me Kate. True, true. Um, also strange musicals. Yes. Was Kiss Me Kate in 3D? Yeah. Yes. I've only ever seen it 
Ann Miller, Miller coming at you in 3D <laughs> is something else. Uh, yeah, The Dolly Sisters is a super strange movie. Uh, again, I was grateful for the warning about racism, in this case, blackface. There's a huge blackface musical number that, uh, I mean, you could cut it for any number of reasons, uh, not least of which is the racism but not least of which either is that it doesn't really contribute anything to the story. Yeah, and it's like, even if you assume a baseline horribleness of blackface yeah. numbers, I feel it's like pretty this rough. was next level. It's pretty rough. And I was wondering about why, and I think it might have been because in the context of the movie, so it's about um, these two these two sisters that were a vaudeville act, singing and dancing, and they were real people. Um, so in the context of the movie, they are performing this number in Paris. So I'm wondering if, like, that kind of number got like extra jacked up for foreign right. audiences because it, they basically it's supposed to be like a downtown New York number. Yeah, to be like, like this Harlem, is how people live in yeah. America. So I, they like took time to have every single kind of stereotype, yeah. which was just real, real bad. But yes, the <laughs> warning was appreciated. But yeah, so it is a true story, more or less, right, yeah, um, as far as that goes. Yeah, but they were apparently like the real Dolly sisters consulted on it. So they signed off on it in some capacity. Um, but one of the love interests is also a real life guy named Harry Fox, um, who apparently invented the Foxtrot. Learned that today. Um, cool. Strange that they didn't include that in the movie, which is about him becoming more and more famous. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, it's very kind of like surreal. It's one of those things you're mentioning with like, you know, you can't imagine people spending a ton of money on sets. Now mm -hmm. they have those kind of like musical numbers that like, you know, it's like Busby Berkeley without all the people, I right. would say, is the best way to describe it. Like these sets that are like Escher paintings that like don't make actual sense. Oh, yeah. And like Jay just look like like Salvador Dali designed them or something. Well, there's a whole musical number in which women dress up as different forms of makeup. Yes. And tell you what the makeup does. <laughs> yeah. And it, because that's the other thing is the costumes are unbelievable. Yeah. So Ori Kelly did the costumes and, you know, he did costumes for a ton of movies of that era. But this was one of the first times that I was just like, I like need a minute. Because <laughs> yeah, like, seriously. so the two sisters wear matching outfits all the time. So all of these outfits, there's two of them, which, you know, intensifies the effect. And they look very much alike. And I had a very hard time telling them apart at times. But like. These costumes are unreal because, again, in this musical number about makeup, there's a woman representing mascara who's wearing a dress covered with eyes. <laughs> and she's like, I'm mascara. <laughs> but, like, just the uh, she And then I can't remember. She's like, I work for Thea Barra. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very deep cut reference yeah. there. But, yeah, it's just the design of it is just incredible. Um and yeah, the plot's kind of whatever, but you know, the leads are pretty charming, I think. Yeah. It's Betty Grable and June Haver. Um, you know, Betty Grable was kind of America's sweetheart during World War II, and like, I get it. You know, she can sing and kind of dance, kind of act. Yeah. The resolution to the film is inexplicable unless all yeah. the characters are telepathically connected. <laughs> because yeah. they all just decide to get on the same emotional page without consulting one another at all. The yeah, right no. people walk away, the right people come on stage, it all works out for no reason. Yeah, but one of like the con major conflicts is like how two people can like maintain a relationship when they're far apart. Yeah. Which um, it's kind of interesting to look at. So this movie is from the forties, but it's set in like the 19 teens to kind of just think about the surprising amount of like international mobility. Some people had then <laughs> it's like, Oh no, you're in New York when I'm in Paris and I'm in London. And like, 
World War II played a part of that, yes. Well, World War One in this case. Sorry, that's what I meant, World War One. But then also, it's like, you've oh, achieved... So we should, should we cut that out? <laughs> but it's like... I'm mainly correcting because I know there's a listener being like, 19 teens, True. there's no World <laughs> War Two. But, but also, it, the joke I made was a little in-joke. Right. <laughs> but it's like... Um, it's like, you've achieved minor success on the vaudeville circuit. We're sending you to Paris, yeah. <laughs> which is like, doesn't happen anymore, I feel like. But there's a lot of things in it that are just weird and delightful. Like, there's a trained seal as part of the vaudeville act. <laughs> How did I forget about that? How I, this was the first thing I wrote down. Yeah. You see, the trained seal sleeps in a bed. <laughs> so you see someone tucking the trained seal in to sleep, lying on a pillow and tucking it in. And then the trainer gets into bed next to it and turns out the light. It's Oh, I've never that. seen anything it's like that in my life. Very I sweet. And that. because the movie's quite rare, I'll spoil the fate of the train seal, which at the very end, the seal trainer comes back and the women are like, oh, how's what's it, Elmer. Elmer doing? He's like, oh, he became an overcoat years ago. <laughs> <laughs> and just that like, made me very upset. It made the audience very upset. Because it's awful. Yeah. <laughs> Elmer, in my mind, lived a long life, <laughs> died of natural causes. They frequently anyway. made overcoats from naturally dead seals. <laughs> just let me have this. Elmer's a hero. Anyway, um, but yeah, it was, you know, shown on nitrate. So it yeah. had that, I think color film is where nitrate really tends to yeah. pop. It had this very kind of silvery, shimmery quality that, yeah, just kind of a nice. It's a good way to end when you're sleep deprived and bleary. Yep. And a little out of it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. All That's right. the festival. Yeah. So uh, TCM Fest is a blast. I look forward to going to the 11th annual TCM yeah. Fest in 2020. You can find us at battleshipretention.com. That's where you, maybe by the time you hear this, you can see some of my write-ups of this. Uh, we'll see. A very busy week. Um, you can uh, follow me. Uh, you can email me at david at battleshipretention.com. You can follow me at uh, on Twitter at DaveyPretension. Uh, you guys, uh, ladies first, do you have anything to plug? Um, I know not, you're not on social media. I'm not really on social media. I mean, for those in the know. But um, <laughs> yes, I work for a company called Variety Insight. We are a comprehensive uh, entertainment database um, that a lot of people in the industry subscribe to. Um, get in touch with our sales team. Tell them Julie sent you. They might hook you up with a discount, but it's a very useful tool for people in the industry. So check that out. Scott? Well, you're also the editor of the American Cinematheque blog. I am the editor uh, of the American Cinematheque blog. I am at battleshipretention.com and criteriancast.com. All my TCM coverage, save for this episode, will be at Criteriancast. I've already posted two entries. Uh, third will go Good up tonight. Good for you. <laughs> you know, some people care. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, that's pretty much it these days. All right. Well, um, thanks for listening, and we'll get you next time. Oh, wait. I didn't know that's what you were doing. Wait. Say hi, Tyler. Hey, everybody. You're supposed to say hi, Tyler. Uh, we'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. Oh, I wanted it to I fucked up. I didn't realize that's what you were doing. Shit. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 